With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. People think Californians live in our own reality. With our heads in the clouds. Maybe we do live in... Preface of the Wars of the Jews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus, translated by William Whiston. Preface. Footnote. I have already observed more than once that this history of the Jewish war was Josephus's first work and published about A.D. 75 when he was but 38 years of age, and that when he wrote it he was not thoroughly acquainted with several circumstances of history from the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, with which it begins, till near his own times, contained in the first and former part of the second book, and so committed many involuntary errors therein. That he published his antiquities eighteen years afterward, in the thirteenth year of Domitian, A.D. 93, when he was much more completely acquainted with those ancient times, and after he had perused those most authentic histories, the first book of Maccabees, and the chronicles of the priesthood of John Hyrcanus, etc., that accordingly he then reviewed those parts of this work and gave the public a more faithful, complete, and accurate account of the facts therein related, and honestly corrected the errors he had before run into. End of footnote. Whereas the war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of, both of those wherein cities have fought against cities, or nations against nations, while some men who were not concerned in the affairs themselves have gotten together vain and contradictory stories by hearsay, and have written them down after a sophistical manner, and while those that were there present have given false accounts of things, and this either out of a humor of flattery to the Romans, or of hatred towards the Jews. And while their writings contain sometimes accusations, and sometimes encomiums, but nowhere the accurate truth of the facts, I have proposed to myself, for the sake of such as live under the government of the Romans, to translate those books into the Greek tongue, which I formerly composed in the language of our country, and sent to the upper barbarians. Footnote. Who these upper barbarians, remote from the sea, were, Josephus himself will inform us in section 2, namely the Parthians and Babylonians, 
and remotest Arabians of the Jews among them, besides the Jews beyond Euphrates and the Adiabeni or Assyrians. Whence we also learn that these Parthians, Babylonians, the remotest Arabians, or at least the Jews among them, as also the Jews beyond Euphrates and the Adiabeni or Assyrians, understood Josephus's Hebrew or rather Chaldaic books of the Jewish war before they were put into the Greek language. End of footnote. Joseph, the son of Matthias, by birth a Hebrew, a priest also, and one who had first fought against the Romans myself and was forced to be present at what was done afterwards, and the author of this work. Now at the time when this great concussion of affairs happened, the affairs of the Romans were themselves in great disorder. Those Jews also who were for innovations then arose when the times were disturbed. They were also in a flourishing condition for strength and riches, insomuch that the affairs of the East were then exceeding tumultuous, while some hoped for gain and others were afraid of loss in such troubles. For the Jews hoped that all of their nation which were beyond Euphrates would have raised an insurrection together with them. The Gauls also in the neighborhood of the Romans were in motion, and the Jeltin were not quiet, but all was in disorder after the death of Nero. And the opportunity now offered induced many to aim at the royal power, and the soldiery effected change out of the hopes of getting money. I thought it therefore an absurd thing to see the truth falsified in affairs of such great consequence, and to take no notice of it, but to suffer those Greeks and Romans that were not in the wars to be ignorant of these things, and to read either flatteries or fictions, while the Parthians and the Babylonians and the remotest Arabians and those of our nation beyond Euphrates with the Adiabeni by my means knew accurately both whence the war begun, what miseries it brought upon us, and after what manner it ended. It is true these writers have the confidence to call their accounts histories, wherein yet they seem to me to fail of their own purpose, as well as to relate nothing that is sound. For they have a mind to demonstrate the greatness of the Romans, while they still diminish and lessen the actions of the Jews, as not discerning how it cannot be that those must appear to be great who have only conquered those that were little. Nor are they ashamed to overlook the length of the war, the multitude of the Roman forces who so greatly suffered in it, or the might of the commanders whose great labors about Jerusalem will be deemed inglorious if what they achieved be reckoned but a small matter. However, I will not go to the other extreme out of opposition to those men who extol the Romans, nor will I determine to raise the actions of my countrymen too high but I will prosecute the actions of both parties with accuracy. Yet shall I suit my language to the passions I am under as to the affairs I describe, and must be allowed to indulge some lamentations upon the miseries undergone by my own country. 
for that it was a seditious temper of our own that destroyed it, and that they were the tyrants among the Jews who brought the Roman power upon us, who unwillingly attacked us and occasioned the burning of our holy temple, Titus Caesar, who destroyed it, is himself a witness, who during the entire war pitied the people who were kept under by the seditious, and did often voluntarily delay the taking of the city, and allowed time to the siege, in order to let the authors have opportunity for repentance. But if anyone makes an unjust accusation against us when we speak so passionately about the tyrants or the robbers or sorely bewail the misfortunes of our country, let him indulge my affections herein, though it be contrary to the rules for writing history, because it had so come to pass that our city Jerusalem had arrived at a higher degree of felicity than any other city under the Roman government, and yet at last fell into the sorest of calamities again. Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, footnote, that these calamities of the Jews, who were our Saviour's murderers, were to be the greatest that had ever been since the beginning of the world, our Saviour had directly foretold. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, Mark chapter 13, verse 19, Luke chapter 21, verses 23 and 24 and that they proved to be such accordingly, Josephus is here a most authentic witness. End of footnote. Are not so considerable as they were, while the authors of them were not foreigners neither. This makes it impossible for me to contain my lamentations, but if any one be inflexible in his censures of me, let him attribute the facts themselves to the historical part, and the lamentations to the writer himself only. However, I may justly blame the learned men among the Greeks, who, when such great actions have been done in their own times, which, upon the comparison, quite eclipse the old wars, do yet sit as judges of those affairs, and pass bitter censures upon the labors of the best writers of antiquity which moderns, although they may be superior to the old writers in eloquence, yet are they inferior to them in the execution of what they intended to do. While these also write new histories about the Assyrians and Medes, as if the ancient writers had not described their affairs as they ought to have done, although these be as far inferior to them in abilities as they are different in their notions from them. For of old every one took upon them to write what happened in his own time, where their immediate concern in the actions made their promises of value, and where it must be reproachful to write lies, when they must be known by the readers to be such. But then an undertaking to preserve the memory of what hath not been before recorded, and to represent the affairs of one's own time to those that come afterwards, is really worthy of praise and commendation. 
Now he is to be esteemed to have taken good pains in earnest, not who does no more than change the disposition and order of other men's works, but he who not only relates what had not been related before, but composes an entire body of history of his own. Accordingly, I have been at great charges and have taken very great pains about this history, though I be a foreigner, and do dedicate this work as a memorial of great actions both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. But for some of our own principal men, their mouths are wide open and their tongues loosed presently for gain and lawsuits, but quite muzzled up when they are to write history, where they must speak truth and gather facts together with a great deal of pains. And so they leave the writing such histories to weaker people and to such as are not acquainted with the actions of princes. Yet shall the real truth of historical facts be preferred by us, how much soever it be neglected among the Greek historians. To write concerning the antiquities of the Jews, who they were originally, and how they revolted from the Egyptians, and what country they traveled over, and what countries they seized upon afterward, and how they were removed out of them, I think this not to be a fit opportunity, and on other accounts also superfluous. And this because many Jews before me have composed the histories of our ancestors very exactly, as have some of the Greeks done it also, and have translated our histories into their own tongue, and have not much mistaken the truth in their histories. But then, where the writers of these affairs and our prophets leave off, thence shall I take my rise and begin my history. Now, as to what concerns that war which happened in my own time, I will go over it very largely, and with all the diligence I am able. But for what preceded mine own age, that I shall run over briefly. For example, I shall relate how Antiochus, who was named Epiphanes, took Jerusalem by force and held it three years and three months, and was then ejected out of the country by the sons of Asamonius. After that, how their posterity quarreled about the government and brought upon their settlement the Romans and Pompey. How Herod also, the son of Antipater, dissolved their government and brought Sosius upon them. As also how our people made a sedition upon Herod's death while Augustus was the Roman emperor and Quintilius Verus was in that country and how the war broke out in the twelfth year of Nero, with what happened to Cestius, and what places the Jews assaulted in a hostile manner in the first sallies of the war. As also I shall relate how they built walls about the neighboring cities, and how Nero, upon Cestius's defeat, was in fear of the entire event of the war, and thereupon made Vespasian general in this war, and how this Vespasian, with the elder of his sons, footnote, Titus, end of footnote, made an expedition into the country of Judea, 
what was the number of the Roman army that he made use of, and how many of his auxiliaries were cut off in all Galilee, and how he took some of its cities entirely and by force, and others of them by treaty and on terms. Now, when I am come so far, I shall describe the good order of the Romans in war and the discipline of their legions, the amplitude of both the Galilees, with its nature and the limits of Judea. And besides this, I shall particularly go over what is peculiar to the country, the lakes and fountains that are in them, and what miseries happened to every city as they were taken and all this with accuracy, as I saw the things done, or suffered in them. For I shall not conceal any of the calamities I myself endured, since I shall relate them to such as know the truth of them. After this I shall relate how, when the Jews' affairs were become very bad, Nero died, and Vespasian, when he was going to attack Jerusalem, was called back to take the government upon him. What signs happened to him relating to his gaining that government, and what mutations of government then happened at Rome, and how he was unwillingly made emperor by his soldiers, and how, upon his departure to Egypt to take upon him the government of the empire, the affairs of the Jews became very tumultuous, as also how the tyrants rose up against them, and fell into dissensions among themselves. Moreover, I shall relate how Titus marched out of Egypt into Judea the second time, as also how and where and how many forces he got together, and in what state the city was by the means of the seditious at his coming, what attacks he made and how many ramparts he cast up of the three walls that encompassed the city and of their measures, of the strength of the city and the structure of the temple and holy house, and besides the measures of those edifices and of the altar, and all accurately determined. A description also of certain of their festivals and seven purifications of purity. Footnote. These seven, or rather five, degrees of purity or purification are enumerated hereafter. The rabbins make ten degrees of them, as Reland there informs us. End of footnote. And the sacred ministrations of the priests, with the garments of the priests and of the high priests, and of the nature of the most holy place of the temple, without concealing anything or adding anything to the known truth of things. After this I shall relate the barbarity of the tyrants towards the people of their own nation, as well as the indulgence of the Romans in sparing foreigners, and how often Titus, out of his desire to preserve the city and the temple, invited the seditious to come to terms of accommodation. I shall also distinguish the sufferings of the people and their calamities, how far they were afflicted by the sedition and how far by the famine, and at length were taken. Nor shall I omit to mention the misfortunes of the deserters, nor the punishments inflicted on the captives, 
as also how the temple was burnt against the consent of Caesar, and how many sacred things that had been laid up in the temple were snatched out of the fire, the destruction also of the entire city with the signs and wonders that went before it, and the taking the tyrants captives, and the multitude of those that were made slaves, and into what different misfortunes they were every one distributed. Moreover, what the Romans did to the remains of the wall, and how they demolished the strongholds that were in the country, and how Titus went over the whole country and settled its affairs, together with his return into Italy and his triumph. I have comprehended all these things in seven books, and have left no occasion for complaint or accusation to such as have been acquainted with this war, and I have written it down for the sake of those that love truth, but not for those that please themselves with fictitious relations. And I will begin my account of these things with what I call my first chapter. End of Preface Recording by Graham Redman Book 1, Chapters 1 and 2 of The Wars of the Jews This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus Translated by William Whiston Book 1, Chapters 1 and 2 Containing the interval of 167 years, from the taking of Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes to the death of Herod the Great. Chapter 1 How the city Jerusalem was taken and the temple pillaged by Antiochus Epiphanes, as also concerning the actions of the Maccabees, Matthias and Judas, and concerning the death of Judas. At the same time that Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, had a quarrel with the sixth Ptolemy about his right to the whole country of Syria, a great sedition fell among the men of power in Judea, and they had a contention about obtaining the government, while each of those that were of dignity could not endure to be subject to their equals. However, Onias, one of the high priests, got the better, and cast the sons of Tobias out of the city, who fled to Antiochus, and besought him to make use of them for his leaders, and to make an expedition into Judea. The king being thereto disposed beforehand, complied with them, and came upon the Jews with a great army, and took their city by force, and slew a great multitude of those that favored Ptolemy, and sent out his soldiers to plunder them without mercy. He also spoiled the temple, and put a stop to the constant practice of offering a daily sacrifice of expiation for three years and six months. But Onias, the high priest, fled to Ptolemy, and received a place from him in the Nomus of Heliopolis, where he built a city resembling Jerusalem, and a temple that was like its temple, concerning which we shall speak more in its proper place hereafter. Footnote. I see little difference in the several accounts in Josephus about the Egyptian temple Onion, of which large complaints are made by his commentators. Onias, it seems, hoped to have made it very like that at Jerusalem, and of the same dimensions, and so he appears to have really done, as far as he was able and thought proper. Of this temple, see Antiquities B. 13, Chapter 3, 
sections 1 through 3, and Of the War, B, 7, Chapter 10, Section 8. End footnote. 2. Now, Antiochus was not satisfied either with his unexpected taking the city, or with its pillage, or with the great slaughter he had made there. But being overcome with his violent passions, and remembering what he had suffered during the siege, he compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of their country, and to keep their infants uncircumcised, and to sacrifice swine's flesh upon the altar, against which they all opposed themselves, and the most approved among them were put to death. Bacchides also, who was sent to keep the fortresses, having these wicked commands, joined to his own natural barbarity, indulged all sorts of the extremest wickedness, and tormented the worthiest of the inhabitants, man by man, and threatened their city every day with open destruction, till at length he provoked the poor sufferers by the extremity of his wicked doings to avenge themselves. 3. Accordingly, Matthias, the son of Asimonius, one of the priests who lived in a village called Modin, armed himself, together with his own family, which had five sons of his in it, and slew Bacchides with daggers. And thereupon, out of the fear of the many garrisons of the enemy, he fled to the mountains, and so many of the people followed him that he was encouraged to come down from the mountains and to give battle to Antiochus's generals, when he beat them and drove them out of Judea. So he came to the government by this his success, and became the prince of his own people by their own free consent, and then died, leaving the government to Judas, his eldest son. 4. Now Judas, supposing that Antiochus would not lie still, gathered an army out of his own countrymen, and was the first that made a league of friendship with the Romans, and drove Epiphanes out of the country when he had made a second expedition into it, and this by giving him a great defeat there. And when he was warmed by this great success, he made an assault upon the garrison that was in the city, for it had not been cut off hitherto. So he ejected them out of the upper city, and drove the soldiers into the lower, which part of the city was called the citadel. He then got the temple under his power, and cleansed the whole place, and walled it round about, and made new vessels for sacred ministrations, and brought them into the temple, because the former vessels had been profaned. He also built another altar, and began to offer the sacrifices. And when the city had already received its sacred constitution again, Antiochus died, whose son Antiochus succeeded him in the kingdom, and in his hatred to the Jews also. 5. So this Antiochus got together 50,000 footmen, and 5,000 horsemen, and fourscore elephants, and marched through Judea into the mountainous parts. He then took Bethsura, which was a small city, but at a place called Bethsacharis, where the passage was narrow, Judas met him with his army. However, before the forces joined battle, Judas's brother Eleazar, seeing the very highest of the elephants adorned with a large tower, and with military trappings of gold to guard him, and supposing that Antiochus himself was upon him, he ran a great way before his own army, and cutting his way through the enemy's troops, he got up to the elephant, yet he could not reach him who seemed to be the king, by reason of his being so high, but still he ran his weapon into the belly of the beast, and brought him down upon himself, and was crushed to death, having done no more than attempted great things, and showed that he preferred glory before life. Now he that governed the elephant was but a private man, and had he proved to be Antiochus, 
Eleazar had performed nothing more by this bold stroke than that it might appear he chose to die when he had the bare hope of thereby doing a glorious action. Nay, this disappointment proved an omen to his brother Judas how the entire battle would end. It is true that the Jews fought it out bravely for a long time, but the king's forces, being superior in number, and having fortune on their side, obtained the victory. And when a great many of his men were slain, Judas took the rest with him, and fled to the toparchy of Gophna. So Antiochus went to Jerusalem, and stayed there but a few days, for he wanted provisions, and so he went his way. He left indeed a garrison behind him, such as he thought sufficient to keep the place, but drew the rest of his army off, to take their winter quarters in Syria. 6. Now, after the king was departed, Judas was not idle, for as many of his own nation came to him, so did he gather those that had escaped out of the battle together, and gave battle again to Antiochus's generals at a village called Adassa. And being too hard for his enemies in the battle, and killing a great number of them, he was at last himself slain also. Nor was it many days afterward that his brother John had a plot laid against him by Antiochus's party, and was slain by them. Chapter 2 Concerning the successors of Judas, who were Jonathan and Simon, and John Hyrcanus. 1. When Jonathan, who was Judas's brother, succeeded him, he behaved himself with great circumspection in other respects, with relation to his own people, and he corroborated his authority by preserving his friendship with the Romans. He also made a league with Antiochus the son. Yet was not all this sufficient for his security, for the tyrant Trypho, who was guardian to Antiochus's son, laid a plot against him, and besides that, endeavored to take off his friends, and caught Jonathan by a while, as he was going to Ptolemaeus to Antiochus, with a few persons in his company, and put him in bonds, and then made an expedition against the Jews. But when he was afterward driven away by Simon, who was Jonathan's brother, and was enraged at his defeat, he put Jonathan to death. 2. However, Simon managed the public affairs after a courageous manner, and took Gazara and Joppa and Jamnia, which were cities in his neighborhood. He also got the garrison under, and demolished the citadel. He was afterward an auxiliary to Antiochus, against Trypho, whom he besieged in Dora before he went on his expedition against the Medes. Yet could not he make the king ashamed of his ambition, though he had assisted him in killing Trypho, for it was not long ere Antiochus sent Sendebius, his general, with an army to lay waste to Judea, and to subdue Simon. Yet he, though he was now in years, conducted the war as if he were a much younger man. He also sent his sons with the band of strong men against Antiochus, while he took part of the army himself with him, and fell upon him from another quarter. He also laid a great many men in ambush in many places of the mountains, and was superior in all his attacks upon them. And when he had been conqueror after so glorious a manner, he was made high priest, and also freed the Jews from the dominion of the Macedonians, after one hundred and seventy years of the empire of Seleucus. 3. This Simon also had a plot laid against him, and was slain at a feast by his son-in-law Ptolemy, who put his wife and two sons into prison, and sent some persons to kill John, who was also called Hyrcanus. Footnote. Why this John, the son of Simon, the high priest and governor of the Jews, was called Hyrcanus, Josephus nowhere informs us, nor is he called other than John at the end of the first book of the Maccabees. However, Sixtus Suensis, when he gives us an epitome of the Greek version of the book here abridged by Josephus, or of the chronicles of this John Hyrcanus, 
then extant, assures us that he was called Hyrcanus from his conquest of one of that time. See Authent Rec. Part 1, page 207. But of this younger Antiochus, see Dean Aldridge's note here. End footnote. But when the young man was informed of their coming beforehand, he made haste to get to the city, as having a very great confidence in the people there, both on account of the memory of the glorious actions of his father, and of the hatred they could not but bear to the injustice of Ptolemy. Ptolemy also made an attempt to get into the city by another gate, but was repelled by the people, who had just then admitted of Hyrcanus. So he retired presently to one of the fortresses that were about Jericho, which was called Dagon. Now when Hyrcanus had received the high priesthood, which his father had held before, and had offered sacrifices to God, he made great haste to attack Ptolemy, that he might afford relief to his mother and brethren. 4. So he laid siege to the fortress, and was superior to Ptolemy in other respects, but was overcome by him as to the just affection he had for his relations. For when Ptolemy was distressed, he brought forth his mother and his brethren, and set them upon the wall, and beat them with rods in everybody's sight, and threatened that unless he would go away immediately, he would throw them down headlong, at which sight Hyrcanus's commiseration and concern were too hard for his anger. But his mother was not dismayed, neither at the stripes she received, nor at the death with which she was threatened, but stretched out her hands, and prayed her son not to be moved with the injuries that she suffered to spare the wretch, since it was to her better to die by the means of Ptolemy, than to live ever so long, provided he might be punished for the injuries he'd done to their family. Now John's case was this. When he considered the courage of his mother, and heard her entreaty, he set about his attacks. But when he saw her beaten, and torn to pieces with the stripes, he grew feeble, and was entirely overcome by his affections. And as the siege was delayed by this means, the year of rest came on, upon which the Jews rest every seventh year, as they do on every seventh day. On this year, therefore, Ptolemy was freed from being besieged, and slew the brethren of John, with their mother, and fled to Zeno, which was also called Cotialis, who is the tyrant of Philadelphia. 5. And now Antiochus was so angry at what he had suffered from Simon, that he made an expedition into Judea, and sat down before Jerusalem, and besieged Hyrcanus. But Hyrcanus opened the sepulchre of David, who was the richest of all kings, and took thence about three thousand talents in money, and induced Antiochus, by the promise of three thousand talents, to raise the siege. Moreover, he was the first of the Jews that had money enough, and began to hire foreign auxiliaries also. 6. However, at another time, when Antiochus was gone upon an expedition against the Medes, and so gave Hyrcanus an opportunity of being revenged upon him, he immediately made an attack upon the cities of Syria, as thinking, what proved to be the case with them, that he should find them empty of God troops. So he took Medaba and Samia, with the towns in their neighborhood, as also Shechem, and Gerizim. And besides these, he subdued the nation of the Cuthians, who dwelt round about that temple which was built in imitation of the temple at Jerusalem. He also took a great many other cities of Idumea, with Adorion and Marissa. 7. He also proceeded as far as Samaria, where is now the city Sebast, which was built by Herod the king, and encompassed it all round with a wall, and set his sons, Aristobulus and Antigonus, over the siege who pushed it on so hard that a famine so far prevailed within the city that they were forced to eat what never was esteemed food. They also invited Antiochus, who was called Cisicinus, 
to come to their assistance, whereupon he got ready, and complied with their invitation, but was beaten by Aristobulus and Antigonus, and fled away from them. So they returned back to Samaria, and shut the multitude again within the wall. And when they had taken the city, they demolished it, and made slaves of its inhabitants. And as they had still great success in their undertakings, they did not suffer their zeal to cool, but marched with an army as far as Scythopolis, and made an incursion upon it, and laid waste all the country that lay within Mount Carmel. 8. But then these successes of John, and of his sons, made them be envied, and occasioned a sedition in the country. And many there were who got together, and would not be at rest till they break out into open war, in which war they were beaten. So John lived the rest of his life very happily, and administered the government after a most extraordinary manner, and this for thirty-three entire years together. He died, leaving five sons behind him. He was certainly a very happy man, and afforded no occasion to have any complaint made of fortune on his account. He it was who alone had three of the most desirable things in the world, the government of his nation, and the high priesthood, and the gift of prophecy. For the deity conversed with him, and he was not ignorant of anything that was to come afterward, insomuch that he foresaw and foretold that his two eldest sons would not continue masters of the government. And it will highly deserve our narration to describe their catastrophe, and how far inferior these men were to their father in felicity. End of Book 1, Chapters 1 and 2Chapters 3 and 4 of The Wars of the Jews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus. Translated by William Whiston. Book 1, Chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 How Aristobulus was the first that put a diadem about his head, and after he had put his mother and brother to death, died himself, when he had reigned no more than a year. 1. For after the death of their father, the elder of them, Aristobulus, changed the government into a kingdom, and was the first that put a diadem upon his head, four hundred seventy and one years and three months after our people came down into this country, when they were set free from the Babylonian slavery. Now, of his brethren, he appeared to have an affection for Antigonus, who was next to him, and made him his equal. But for the rest he bound them, and put them in prison. He also put his mother in bonds, for her contesting the government with him, for John had left her to be the governess of public affairs. He also proceeded to that degree of barbarity as to cause her to be pined to death in prison. 2. But vengeance circumvented him in the affair of his brother Antigonus, whom he loved, and whom he made his partner in the kingdom for he slew him by the means of the calumnies which ill men about the palace contrived against him. At first, indeed, Aristobulus would not believe their reports, partly out of the affection he had for his brother, and partly because he thought that a great part of these tales were owing to the envy of their relators. However, as Antigonus came once in a splendid manner from the army to that festival, wherein our ancient custom is to make tabernacles for God, it happened in those days that Aristobulus was sick, and that, at the conclusion of the feast, Antigonus came up to it, with his armed men about him, and this when he was adorned in the finest manner possible. 
and that, in a great measure, to pray to God on the behalf of his brother. Now at this very time it was that these ill men came to the king, and told him in what a pompous manner the armed men came, and with what insolence Antigonus marched, and that such his insolence was too great for a private person, and that accordingly he was come with a great band of men to kill him. For what he could not endure this bare enjoyment of royal honor, when it was in his power to take the kingdom himself. 3. Now Aristobulus, by degrees, and unwillingly, gave credit to these accusations, and accordingly he took care not to discover his suspicion openly, though he provided to be secure against any accidents. So he placed the guards of his body in a certain dark subterranean passage, for he lay sick in a place called formerly the Citadel, though afterwards its name was changed to Antonia. And he gave orders that if Antigonus came unarmed, they should let him alone. But if he came to him in his armor, they should kill him. He also sent home to let him know beforehand that he should come unarmed. But upon this occasion, the queen very cunningly contrived the matter with those that plotted his ruin, for she persuaded those that were sent to conceal the king's message, but to tell Antigonus how his brother had heard he had got a very the suit of armor made with fine martial ornaments in Galilee, and because his present sickness hindered him from coming and seeing all that finery, he very much desired to see him now in his armor, because, said he, in a little time thou art going away from me. 4. As soon as Antigonus heard this, the good temper of his brother not allowing him to suspect any harm from him, he came along with his armor on to show it to his brother. But when he was going along that dark passage, which was called Strato's Tower, he was slain by the bodyguards, and became an eminent instance how calumny destroys all good will and natural affection, and how none of our good affections are strong enough to resist envy perpetually. 5. And truly, any one would be surprised at Judas upon this occasion. He was of the sect of the Essens, and had never failed or deceived men in his predictions before. Now this man saw Antigonus as he was passing along by the temple, and cried out to his acquaintance, there were not a few who attended upon him as his scholars. Oh, strange, said he, it is good for me to die now, since truth is dead before me, and somewhat that I have foretold hath proved false. For this Antigonus is this day alive, who ought to hear died this day, and the place where he ought to be slain, according to that fatal decree, was Strato's tower, which is at the distance of six hundred furlongs from this place. And yet four hours of this day are over already, which point of time renders the prediction impossible to be filled. And when the old man had said this, he was dejected in his mind, and so continued. But in a little time news came that Antigonus was slain in a subterraneous passage, which was itself also called Strato's Tower, by the same name with that Caesarea which lay by the seaside, and this ambiguity it was which caused the prophet's disorder. 6. Hereupon Aristobulus repented of the great crime he had been guilty of, and this gave occasion to the increase of his distemper. He also grew worse and worse, and his soul was constantly disturbed at the thoughts of what he had done, till his very bowels being torn to pieces by the intolerable grief he was under, so threw up a great quantity of blood. And as one of those servants that attended him carried out that blood, he, by some supernatural providence, slipped and fell down in the very place where Antigonus had been slain. And so he spilled some of the murderer's blood upon the spots of the blood had been murdered, which still appeared. Hereupon a lamentable cry arose among the spectators, 
as if the servant had spilled the blood on purpose in that place. And as the king heard that cry, he inquired what was the cause of it. And while nobody durst tell him, he pressed them so much the more to let him know what was the matter. So at length, when he had threatened them, and forced them to speak out, they told. Whereupon he burst into tears and groaned, and said, So I perceive I am not like to escape the all-seeing eye of God as to the great crimes I have committed, but the vengeance of the blood of my kinsmen pursues me hastily. O thou most impudent body, how long wilt thou retain a soul that ought to die on account of the punishment it ought to suffer for a mother and a brother slain? How long shall I myself spend my blood drop by drop? Let them take it all at once, and let their ghosts no longer be disappointed by a few parcels of my bowels offered to them. As soon as he had said these words, he presently died, when he had reigned no longer than a year. Chapter 4. What actions were done by Alexander Janius, who reigned twenty-seven years? 1. And now the king's wife loosed the king's brethren, and made Alexander king, who appeared both elder in age and more moderate in his temper than the rest, who, when he came to the government, slew one of his brethren, as affecting to govern himself, but had the other of them in great esteem, as loving a quiet life, without meddling with public affairs. 2. Now it happened that there was a battle between him and Ptolemy, who is called Lathyrus, who had taken the city Asokis. He indeed slew a great many of his enemies, but the victory rather inclined to Ptolemy. But when this Ptolemy was pursued by his mother Cleopatra, and retired into Egypt, Alexander besieged Gadara, and took it. He also did Amathus, which was the strongest of all the fortresses that were about Jordan, and therein were the most precious of all the possessions of Theodorus, the son of Zeno. Whereupon Theodopus marched against him, and took what belonged to himself, as well as the king's baggage, and slew ten thousand of the Jews. However, Alexander recovered this blow, and turned his force towards the maritime parts, and took Raphia and Gaza, with Anthedon also, which was afterwards called Agrippius by King Herod. 3. But when he had made slaves of the citizens of all these cities, the nation of the Jews made an insurrection against him at a festival. For at those feasts seditions are generally begun, and it looked as if he should not be able to escape the plot they had laid for him, and not his foreign auxiliaries, the Pisidians and Cilicians, assisted him. For as to the Syrians, he never admitted them among his mercenary troops, on account of their innate enmity against the Jewish nation. And when he had slain more than six thousand of the rebels, he made an incursion into Arabia. And when he had taken that country, together with the Gileadaries and Moabites, he enjoined them to pay him tribute, and return to Ariathus. And as Theodorus was surprised at his great success, he took the fortress and demolished it. 4. However, when he fought with Obodas, king of the Arabians, who had lain in ambush for him near Golan, and a plot against him, he lost his entire army, which was crowded together in a deep valley, and broken to pieces by the multitude of camels. And when he had made his escape to Jerusalem, he provoked the multitude, which hated him before, to make an insurrection against him, and this on account of the greatness of the calamity that he was under. However, he was then too hard for them, and, in the several battles that were fought on both sides, he slew not fewer than fifty thousand of the Jews in the interval of six years. Yet he had no reason to rejoice in these victories, since he did but consume his own kingdom, till at length he left off fighting, 
and endeavored to come to a composition with them, by talking with his subjects. But this mutability and irregularity of his conduct made them hate him still more, and when he asked them why they so hated him, and what he should do in order to appease them, they said, by killing himself. For that it would be then all they could do to be reconciled to him, who had done such tragical things to them, even when he was dead. At the same time they invited Demetrius, who was called Eucerus, to assist them, and as he readily complied with their requests, in hopes of great advantages, and came with his army, the Jews joined with those auxiliaries about Shechem. Yet did Alexander meet both these forces with one thousand horsemen, and eight thousand mercenaries that were on foot. He also had with him that part of the Jews which favored him, to the number of ten thousand, while the adverse party had three thousand horsemen, and fourteen thousand footmen. Now, before they joined battle, the kings made proclamation, and endeavored to draw off each other's soldiers, and make them revolt. While Demetrius hoped to induce Alexander's mercenaries to leave him, and Alexander hoped to induce the Jews that were with Demetrius to leave him. But since neither the Jews would leave off their rage, nor the Greeks prove unfaithful, they came to an engagement, and to a close fight with their weapons, in which battle Demetrius was the conqueror, although Alexander's mercenaries showed the greatest exploits, both in soul and body. Yet did the upshot of this battle prove different from what was expected, as to both of them. For neither did those that invited Demetrius to come to them continue firm to him, though he was conqueror, and six thousand Jews, out of pity to the change of Alexander's condition, when he was fled to the mountains, came over to him. Yet could not Demetrius bear this turn of affairs. But supposing that Alexander was already become a match for him again, and that all the nation would at length run to him, he left the country and went his way. However, the rest of the Jewish multitude did not lay aside their quarrels with him when the foreign auxiliaries were gone, but they had a perpetual war with Alexander until he had slain the greatest part of them and driven the rest into the city Bernasilis. And when he had demolished that city, he carried the captives to Jerusalem. Nay, his rage was grown so extravagant that his barbarity proceeded to the degree of impiety. For when he had ordered eight hundred to be hung upon crosses in the midst of the city, he had the throats of their wives and children cut before their eyes, and these executions he saw as he was drinking and lying down with his concubines, upon which so deep a surprise seized on the people that eight thousand of his opposers fled away the very next night out of all Judea, whose flight was only terminated by Alexander's death. So at last, though not till late, and with great difficulty, he, by such actions, procured quiet to his kingdom, and left off fighting any more. 7. Yet did that Antiochus, who is also called Dionysius, became an origin of troubles again. This man was the brother of Demetrius, and the last of the race of the Seleucidae. Footnote. Josephus here calls this Antiochus the last of the Seleucidae, although there remained still a shadow of another king of that family, Antiochus Asiaticus, or Comagenus, who reigned, or rather lay hid, till Pompey quite turned him out, as Dean Aldridge here notes from Appian and Justin. End footnote. Alexander was afraid of him when he was marching against the Arabians, so he cut a deep trench between Antipatris, which was near the mountains, and the shores of Joppa. He also erected a high wall before the trench, and built wooden towers, in order to hinder any sudden approaches. But still he was not able to exclude Antiochus, for he burnt the towers, and filled up the trenches, and marched on with his army. And as he looked upon taking his revenge on Alexander, for endeavoring to stop him, 
as a thing of less consequence, he marched directly against the Arabians, whose king retired into such parts of the country as were fittest for engaging the enemy, and then on the sudden made his horse turn back, which were in number ten thousand, and fell upon Antiochus's army while they were in disorder, and a terrible battle ensued. Antiochus's troops, so long as he was alive, fought it out, although a mighty slaughter was made among them by the Arabians. But when he fell, for he was in the forefront, in the utmost danger, in rallying his troops, they all gave ground, and the greatest part of his army were destroyed, either in the action or the flight. And for the rest, who fled to the village of Cana, it happened that they were all consumed by want of necessaries, a few only excepted. 8. About this time it was that the people of Damascus, out of their hatred to Ptolemy, the son of Menhens, invited Aretas to take the government, and made him king of Celesyria. This man also made an expedition against Judea, and beat Alexander in battle, but afterwards retired by mutual agreement. But Alexander, when he had taken Pella, marched to Gerasa again, out of his covetous desire he had of Theodorus's possessions. And when he had built a triple wall about the garrison, he took the place by force. He also demolished Golan, and Seleucia, and what was called the Valley of Antiochus. Besides which, he took the strong fortress of Gamala, and stripped Demetrius, who was governor therein, of what he had on account of the many crimes laid to his charge, and then returned into Judea, after he had been there three whole years in this expedition. And now he was kindly received of the nation, because of the good success he had. So when he was at rest from war, he fell into distemper, for he was afflicted with a court and ague, and supposed that, by exercising himself again in martial affairs, he should get rid of this distemper, but by making such expeditions at unseasonable times, and forcing his body to undergo greater hardships than it was able to bear, he brought himself to his end. He died, therefore, in the midst of his troubles, after he had reigned seven and twenty years. End of Book 1, Chapters 3 and 4one chapters five and six of the wars of the jews this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the wars of the jews by josephus translated by william whiston book one chapters five and six chapter five alexandra reigns nine years during which time the Pharisees were the real rulers of the nation. 1. Now Alexander left the kingdom to Alexandra, his wife, and depended upon it that the Jews would now very readily submit to her, because she had been very averse to such cruelty as he had treated them with, and had opposed his violation of their laws, and had thereby got the goodwill of the people. Nor was he mistaken as to his expectations, for this woman kept the dominion by the opinion that the people had of her piety, for she chiefly studied the ancient customs of her country, and cast those men out of the government that offended against their holy laws. And as she had two sons by Alexander, she made Hyrcanus the elder high priest, on account of his age, as also, besides that, on account of his inactive temper, no way disposing him to disturb the public. But she retained the younger, Aristobulus, with her as a private person, by reason of the warmth of his temper. 2. And now the Pharisees joined themselves to her, to assist her in the government. There are a certain sect of the Jews that appear more religious than others, 
and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. Lo, Alexander hearkened to them to an extraordinary degree, as being herself a woman of great piety towards God. But these Pharisees artfully insinuated themselves into her favor by little and little, and became themselves the real administrators of the public affairs. They banished and reduced whom they pleased, they bound and loosed men at their pleasure. Footnote. Matthew 16, 19, 18, 18. Here we have the oldest and most authentic Jewish exposition of binding and loosing, for punishing or absolving men, not for declaring actions lawful or unlawful, as some more modern Jews and Christians vainly pretend. End footnote. And, to say all at once, they had the enjoyment of the royal authority, whilst the expenses and the difficulties of it belonged to Alexandra. She was a sagacious woman in the management of great affairs, and intent always upon gathering soldiers together, so that she increased the army the one half, and procured a great body of foreign troops, till her own nation became not only very powerful at home, but terrible also to foreign potentates, while she governed other people, and the Pharisees governed her. 3. Accordingly, they themselves slew Diogenes, a person of figure, and one that had been a friend to Alexander, and accused him as having assisted the king with his advice, for crucifying the eight hundred men before mentioned. They also prevailed with Alexandra to put to death the rest of the house who had irritated him against them. Now she was so superstitious as to comply with their desires, and accordingly they slew whom they pleased themselves. But the principal of those that were in danger fled to Aristobulus, who persuaded his mother to spare the men on account of their dignity, but to expel them out of the city, unless she took them to be innocent. So they were suffered to go unpunished, and were dispersed all over the country. But when Alexandra sent out her army to Damascus, under pretense that Ptolemy was always oppressing that city, she got possession of it, nor did it make any considerable resistance. She also prevailed with Tigranes, king of Armenia, who lay with his troops about Ptolemaeus, and besieged Cleopatra. Footnote. Strabo relates that this Selene Cleopatra was besieged by Tigranes, not in Ptolemaeus, as here, but after she had left Syria, in Seleucia, a citadel in Mesopotamia, and adds that when he had kept her a while in prison, he put her to death. Dean Eldridge supposes here that Strabo contradicts Josephus, which does not appear to me. For although Josephus says both here and in the Antiquities that Tigranes besieged her now in Ptolemaeus, and that he took the city, as the Antiquities inform us, yet does he nowhere intimate that he now took the queen herself, so that both the narrations of Strabo and Josephus may still be true notwithstanding. End footnote. By agreements and presents to go away. Accordingly, Tigranes soon arose from the siege by reason of those domestic tumults which happened upon Lucullus's expedition into Armenia. 4. In the meantime, Alexandra fell sick, and Aristobulus, her younger son, took hold of this opportunity with his domestics, of which he had a great many, who were all of them his friends, on account of the warmth of their youth, and got possession of all the fortresses. He also used the sums of money he found in them to get together a number of mercenary soldiers, and made himself king. And besides this, upon Hyrcanus's complaint to his mother, she compassionated his case, and put Aristobulus's wife and sons under restraint in Antonia, which was a fortress that joined to the north part of the temple. It was, as I have already said, of old called the Citadel, but afterwards got the name of Antonia, when Antony was lord of the east. 
just as the other cities, Sebast and Agrippius, had their names changed, and these given them from Sebastus and Agrippa. But Alexandra died before she could punish Aristobulus for his disinheriting his brother, after she had reigned nine years. Chapter 6 When Hyrcanus, who was Alexander's heir, receded from his claim to the crown, Aristobulus is made king, and afterward the same Hyrcanus, by the means of Antipater, is brought back by Abetus. At last Pompey is made the arbitrator of the dispute between the brothers. 1. Now Hyrcanus was heir to the kingdom, and to him did his mother commit it before she died. But Aristobulus was superior to him in power and magnanimity. And when there was a battle between them, to decide the dispute about the kingdom, near Jericho, the greatest part deserted Hyrcanus, and went over to Aristobulus. But Hyrcanus, with those of his party who stayed with him, fled to Antonia, and got into his power the hostages that might he for his preservation, which were Aristobulus's wife, with her children. But they came to an agreement before things should come to extremities, that Aristobulus should be king, and Hyrcanus should resign that up, but retain all the rest of his dignities, as being the king's brother. Hereupon they were reconciled to each other in the temple, and embraced one another in a very kind manner, while the people stood round about them. They also changed their houses, while Aristobulus went to the royal palace, and Hyrcanus retired to the house of Aristobulus. 2. Now those other people, which were at variance with Aristobulus, were afraid upon his unexpected obtaining the government, and especially this concerned Antipater, and especially this concerned Antipater, whom Aristobulus hated of old. Footnote. That this Antipater, the father of Herod the Great, was an Idumean, as Josephus affirms here. See the note on Antiquities B. 14, Chapter 15, Section 2. It is somewhat probable, as Haberkamp supposes, and partly Spanheim also, that the Latin is here and truest, that Pompey did him Hyrcanus, as he would have done the others from Aristobulus, although his remarkable abstinence from the two thousand talents that were in the Jewish temple, when he took it a little afterward, will to Greek all which agree he did not take them. End footnote. He was by birth an Idumean, and one of the principal of that nation, on account of his ancestors and riches, and other authority to him belonging. He also persuaded Hyrcanus to fly to Aretas, the king of Arabia, and to lay claim to the kingdom, as also he persuaded Aretas to receive Hyrcanus, and to bring him back to his kingdom. He also cast great reproaches upon Aristobulus, as to his morals, and gave great commendations to Hyrcanus, and exhorted Aretas to receive him, and told him how becoming a filing it would be for him, who ruled so great a kingdom, to afford his assistance to such as are injured, alleging that Hyrcanus was treated unjustly by being deprived of that dominion which belonged to him by the prerogative of his birth. And when he had predisposed them both to do what he would have them, he took Hyrcanus by night, and ran away from the city, and, continuing his flight with great swiftness, he escaped to the place called Petra, which is the royal seat of the king of Arabia, where he put Hyrcanus into Aretas's hand, and by discoursing much with him, and gaining upon him with many presents, he prevailed with him to give him an army that might restore him to his kingdom. This army consisted of fifty thousand footmen and horsemen, against which Aristobulus was not able to make resistance, but was deserted in his first onset, and was driven to Jerusalem. He also had been taken at first by force, if Scaurus, the Roman general, had not come and seasonably interposed himself, 
and raise the siege. This Scaurus was sent in Caesarea from Armenia by Pompey the Great, when he fought against Tigranes. So Scaurus came to Damascus, which had been lately taken by Metellus and Lolanus, and caused them to leave the place. And, upon his hearing how the affairs of Judea stood, he made haste thither as to a certain booty. 3. As soon, therefore, as he was come into the country, there came ambassadors from both the brothers, each of them desiring his assistance. But Aristobulus's three hundred talents had more weight with him than the justice of the cause, which some, when Scarus had received, he sent a herald to Hyrcanus and the Arabians, and threatened them with the resentment of the Romans and of Pompey, unless they would raise the siege. So Aretas was terrified, and retired out of Judea to Philadelphia, as did Scarus return to Damascus again. Nor was Aristobulus satisfied with escaping out of his brother's hands, but gathered all his forces together, and pursued his enemies, and fought them at a place called Papyron, and slew about six thousand of them, and, together with them, Antipater's brother, Phalion. 4. When Hyrcanus and Antipater were thus deprived of their hopes from the Arabians, they transferred the same to their adversaries. And because Pompey had passed through Syria, and was come to Damascus, they fled to him for assistance, and, without any bribes, they made the same equitable pleas that they had used to Aretas, and besought him to hate the violent behavior of Aristobulus, and to bestow the kingdom on him to whom it justly belonged, both on account of his good character and on account of his superiority in age. However, neither was Aristobulus wanting to himself in this case, as relying on the bribes that Scarus had received, he was also there himself, and adorned himself after a manner the most agreeable to royalty that he was able. But he soon thought it beneath him to come in such a servile manner, and could not endure to serve his own ends in a way so much more abject than he was used to. So he departed from Diospolis. 5. At this his behavior Pompey had great indignation. Hyrcanus also and his friends made great intercessions to Pompey, so he took not only from his Roman forces, but many of his Syrian auxiliaries, and marched against Aristobulus. But when he had passed by Pella and Scythopolis, and was come to Korea, where you enter into the country of Judea, when you go up to it through the Mediterranean parts, he heard that Aristobulus was fled to Alexandrium, which is a stronghold fortified with the utmost magnificence, and situated upon a high mountain. And he sent to him, and commanded him to come down. Now his inclination was to try his fortune in a battle, since he was called in such an imperious manner, rather than to comply with that call. However, he saw the multitude were in great fear, and his friends exhorted him to consider what power of the Romans was, and how it was irresistible. So he complied with their advice, and came down to Pompey. And when he had made a long apology for himself, and for the justness of his cause in taking the government, he returned to the fortress. And when his brother invited him again to plead his cause, he came down and spake about the justice of it, and then went away without any hindrance from Pompey. So he was between hope and fear. And when he came down, it was to prevail with Pompey to allow him the government entirely. And when he went up to the citadel, it was that he might not appear to debase himself too low. However, Pompey commanded him to give up his fortified places, and forced him to write to every one of their governors to yield them up, they having had this charge given them, to obey no letters but what were of his own handwriting. Accordingly, he did what he was ordered to do, but he had still an indignation at what was done, and retired to Jerusalem, and prepared to fight with Pompey.
6. But Pompey did not give him time to make any preparations for a siege, but followed him at his heels. He was also obliged to make haste in his attempt by the death of Mithridates, of which he was informed about Jericho. Now here is the most fruitful country of Judea, which bears a vast number of palm trees besides the balsam tree, whose sprouts they cut with sharp stones, and at the incisions they gather the juice, which drops down like tears. So Pompey pitched his camp in that place one night, and then hasted away the next morning to Jerusalem. But Aristobulus was so affrighted at his approach, that he came and met him by way of supplication. He also promised him money, and that he would deliver up both himself and the city into his disposal, and thereby mitigated the anger of Pompey. Yet did not he perform any of the conditions he had agreed to, for Aristobulus's party would not so much as admit Gabinius into the city, who was sent to receive the money that he had promised. End of Book 1, Chapters 5 and 6
on which the Jews abstained from all sorts of work on a religious account, and raised his bank, but restrained his soldiers from fighting on those days. For the Jews only acted defensively on Sabbath days. But as soon as Pompey had filled up the valley, he erected high towers upon the bank, and brought those engines which they had fetched from Tyre near to the wall, and tried to batter it down. And the slingers of stones beat off those that stood above them, and drove them away. But the towers on this side of the city made very great resistance, and were indeed extraordinary, both for largeness and magnificence. 4. Now here it was that, upon the many hardships which the Romans underwent, Pompey could not but admire, not only at the other instances of the Jews' fortitude, but especially that they did not at all intermit their religious services, even when they were encompassed with darts on all sides. For, as if the city were in full peace, their daily sacrifices and purifications, and every branch of their religious worship, was still performed to God with the utmost exactness. Nor indeed when the temple was actually taken, and they were every day slain about the altar, did they leave off the instances of their divine worship that were appointed by their law. For it was in the third month of the siege before the Romans could even with great difficulty overthrow one of the towers and get into the temple. Now he that first of all ventured to get over the wall was Faustus Cornelius, the son of Scylla. And next after him were two centurions, Furius and Fabius. And every one of these was followed by a cohort of his own, who encompassed the Jews on all sides and slew them, some of them as they were running for shelter to the temple, and others as they, for a while, fought in their own defense. 5. And now did many of the priests, even when they saw their enemies assailing them with swords in their hands, without any disturbance, go on with their divine worship, and were slain while they were offering their drink offerings, and burning their incense, as preferring the duties about their worship to God before their own preservation. The greatest part of them were slain by their own countrymen of the adverse faction, and an innumerable multitude threw themselves down the precipices. Nay, some there were who were so distracted among the insuperable difficulties they were under, that they set fire to the buildings that were near to the wall, and were burnt together with them. Now, of the Jews were slain twelve thousand, but of the Romans very few were slain, but a greater number was wounded. 6. But there was nothing that affected the nation so much in the calamities that they were then under, as that their holy place, which had been hitherto seen by none, should be laid open to strangers, for Pompey, and those that were about him, went into the temple itself. Footnote. Thus says Tacitus. C.N. Papelna first of all subdued the Jews, and went into their temple, by right of conquest. Nor did he touch any of its riches, as has been observed on the parallel place of the Antiquities. B. 14. Chapter 4. Section 4. Out of Cicero himself. End footnote. Whither it was not lawful for any to enter but the high priest, and saw what was reposited therein, the candlestick with its lamps, and the table, and the pouring vessels, and the censers, all made entirely of gold, as also a great quantity of spices heaped together, with two thousand talents of sacred money. Yet did not he touch that money, nor anything else that was there reposited. But he commanded the ministers about the temple, the very next day after he had taken it, to cleanse it, and to perform their accustomed sacrifices. Moreover, he made Hyrcanus high priest, 
as one that not only in other respects had showed great alacrity on his side during the siege, but as he had been the means of hindering the multitude that was in the country from fighting for Aristobulus, which they were otherwise very ready to have done, by which means he acted the part of a good general, and reconciled the people to him more by benevolence than by terror. Now, among the captives, Aristobulus's father-in-law was taken, who was also his uncle. So those that were the most guilty he punished with Decalathlon, but rewarded Faustus, and those with him that had fought so bravely, with glorious presence, and laid a tribute upon the country, and upon Jerusalem itself. 7. He also took away from the nation all those cities that they had formerly taken, and that belonged to Celesyria, and made them subject to him, that he was at that time appointed to be the Roman president there, and reduced Judea within its proper bounds. He also rebuilt Gadara. Footnote. The coin of this Gadara, still extant, with its date from this era, is a certain evidence of this its rebuilding by Pompey, as Spanheim here assures us. End footnote. That had been demolished by the Jews, in order to gratify one Demetrius, who was of Gadara, and was one of his own freedmen. He also made other cities free from their dominion, that lay in the midst of the country, such, I mean, as they had not demolished before that time, Hippos and Scythopolis, as also Pella and Samaria and Marissa, and besides these Ashdod and Jamnia and Arethusa, and in like manner dealt he with the maritime cities, Gaza and Joppa and Dora, and that which was anciently called Strato's Tower, but was afterward rebuilt with the most magnificent edifices, and had its name changed to Caesarea by King Herod all which he restored to their own citizens, and put them under the province of Syria, which province, together with Judea, and the countries as far as Egypt and Euphrates, he committed to Scarus as their governor, and gave him two legions to support him, while he made all the haste he could himself to go through Cilicia, in his way to Rome, having Aristobulus and his children along with him as his captives. They were two daughters and two sons, the one of which sons, Alexander, ran away as he was going, but the younger, Antigonus, with his sisters, was carried to Rome. Chapter 8 The son of Aristobulus, who ran away from Pompey, makes an expedition against Hyrcanus, but being overcome by Gabinius, he delivers up the fortresses to him. After this, Aristobulus escapes from Rome and gathers an army together, but being beaten by the Romans, he is brought back to Rome, with other things relating to Gabinius, Crassus, and Cassius. 1. In the meantime, Scarus made an expedition into Arabia, but was stopped by the difficulty of the places about Petra. However, he laid waste the country about Pella, though even there he was under great hardship, for his army was afflicted with famine. In order to supply which want, Hyrcanus afforded him some assistance, and sent him provisions by the means of Antipater whom also Scarus sent to Eretus, as one well acquainted with him, to induce him to pay him money to buy his peace. The king of Arabia complied with the proposal, and gave him three hundred talents, upon which Scarus drew his army out of Arabia. Footnote. Take the like attestation to the truth of this submission of Eretus, king of Arabia, to Scarus, the Roman general, in the words of Dean Aldrich. Hence, says he, is derived that old and famous denarius belonging to the Emilian family, represented in Havergamp's edition, wherein Aretas appears in a posture of supplication, 
and taking hold of a camel's bridle with his left hand, and with his right hand presenting a branch of the frankincense tree, with this inscription, M. Scarus XSC, and beneath, Rex Aretas. End footnote. 2. But as for Alexander, that son of Aristobulus who ran away from Pompeii, in some time he got a considerable band of men together, and lay heavy upon Hyrcanus, and overran Judea, and was likely to overturn him quickly. And indeed he had come to Jerusalem, and had ventured to rebuild its wall that was thrown down by Pompeii, had not Gabinius, who was sent as successor to Scarus into Syria, showed his bravery, as in many other points, so in making an expedition against Alexander, who, as he was afraid that he would attack him, so he got together a large army, composed of ten thousand armed footmen, and fifteen hundred horsemen. He also built walls about proper places, Alexandrium, and Hyrcanium, and Machorus, that lay upon the mountains of Arabia. 3. However, Gabinius sent before him Marcus Antonius, and followed himself with his whole army. But for the select body of soldiers that were about Antipater, and another body of Jews under the command of Malichus and Pithelaeus, these joined themselves to those captains that were about Marcus Antonius, and met Alexander, to which body came Oabinius with his main army soon afterward. And as Alexander was not able to sustain the charge of the enemy's forces, now they were joined, he retired. But when he was come near to Jerusalem, he was forced to fight, and lost six thousand men in the battle, three thousand of which fell down dead, and three thousand were taken alive. So he fled with the remainder to Alexandrium. Now when Gabinius was come to Alexandrium, because he found a great many there and camped, he tried, by promising them pardon for their former offenses, to induce them to come over to him before it came to a fight. But when they would hearken to no terms of accommodation, he slew a great number of them, and shut up a great number of them in the citadel. Now Marcus Antonius, their leader, signalized himself in this battle, who, as he always showed great courage, so did he never show it so much as now. But Gabinius, leaving forces to take the citadel, went away himself, and settled the cities that had not been demolished, and rebuilt those that had been destroyed. Accordingly, upon his injunctions, the following cities were restored, Scythopolis, and Samaria, and Anthedon, and Apollonia, and Jamnia, and Raphia, and Mariatha, and Adorius, and Gamala, and Ashdod, and many others, while a great number of men readily ran to each of them, and became their inhabitants. 5. When Gabinius had taken care of these cities, he returned to Alexandrium, and pressed on the siege. So when Alexander despaired of ever obtaining the government, he sent ambassadors to him, and prayed him to forgive what he had offended him in, and gave up to him the remaining fortresses, Hyrcanium and Machaerus, as he put Alexandrium into his hands afterwards, all which Gabinius demolished, at the persuasion of Alexander's mother, that they might not be receptacles of men in a second war. She was now there in order to mollify Gabinius, out of her concern for her relations that were captives at Rome, which were her husband and her other children. After this, Gabinius brought Hyrcanus to Jerusalem, and committed the care of the temple to him, but ordained the other political government to be by an aristocracy. He also parted the whole nation into five conventions, assigning one portion to Jerusalem, another to Gadara, then another should belong to Amathus, a fourth to Jericho, and to the fifth division was allotted Sepphoris, a city of Galilee. So the people were glad to be thus freed from monarchical government, 
and were governed for the future by all aristocracy. 6. Yet did Aristobulus afford another foundation for new disturbances. He fled away from Rome, and got together again many of the Jews that were desirous of a change, such as he had borne in affection to him of old. And when he had taken Alexandrium in the first place, he attempted to build a wall about it. But as soon as Gabinius had sent an army against him under Siscuria, and Antonius, and Servilius, he was aware of it and retreated to Macarus. And as for the unprofitable multitude, he dismissed them, and only marched on with those that were armed, being to the number of eight thousand, among whom was Pitholaus, who had been the lieutenant at Jerusalem, but deserted to Aristobulus with a thousand of his men. So the Romans followed him, and when it came to a battle, Aristobulus's party for a long time fought courageously, but at length they were overborne by the Romans, and of them five thousand fell down dead, and about two thousand fled to a certain little hill. But the thousand that remained with Aristobulus break through the Roman army, and march together to Macarus. And when the king had lodged the first night upon its ruins, he was in hopes of raising another army. If the war would but cease a while, accordingly he fortified that stronghold, though it was done after a poor manner. But the Romans falling upon him, he resisted, even beyond his abilities, for two days, and then was taken and brought a prisoner to Gabinius, with Antigonus his son, who had fled away together with him from Rome and from Gabinius he was carried to Rome again. Wherefore the Senate put him under confinement, but returned his children back to Judea, because Gabinius informed them by letters that he had promised Aristobulus's mother to do so, for her delivering the fortresses up to him. 7. But now, as Gabinius was marching to the war against the Parthians, he was hindered by Ptolemy, whom, upon his return from Euphrates, he brought back into Egypt, making use of Hyrcanus and Antipater to provide everything that was necessary for the expedition. For Antipater furnished him with money and weapons and corn and auxiliaries. He also prevailed with the Jews that were there, and guarded the avenues at Pelusium to let them pass. But now, upon Gabinius's absence, the other part of Syria was in motion, and Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, brought the Jews to revolt again. Accordingly, he got together a very great army, and set about killing all the Romans that were in the country. Hereupon Gabinius was afraid, for he was come back already out of Egypt, and obliged to come back quickly by these tumults, and sent Antipater, who prevailed with some of the revolters to be quiet. However, thirty thousand still continued with Alexander, who was himself eager to fight also. Accordingly, Gabinius went out to fight, when the Jews met him, and as the battle was fought near Mount Tabor, Ten thousand of them were slain, and the rest of the multitude dispersed themselves and fled away. So Gabinius came to Jerusalem, and settled the government as Antipater would have it. Thence he marched, and fought and beat the Nabataeans. As for Mithridates and Orsenes, who fled out of Parthen, he sent them away privately, but gave it out among the soldiers that they had run away. 8. In the meantime, Crassus came as successor to Gabinius in Syria, he took away all the rest of the gold belonging to the temple of Jerusalem in order to furnish himself for his expedition against the Parthians. He also took away the two thousand talents which Pompey had not touched. But when he had passed over Euphrates, he perished himself and his army with him, concerning which affairs this is not a proper time to speak more largely. 9. But now Cassius, after Crassus, put a stop to the Parthians, who were marching in order to enter Syria. Cassius had fled into that province, 
and when he had taken possession of the same, he made a hasty march into Judea, and, upon his taking Terechiae, he carried thirty thousand Jews into slavery. He also slew Pitholaus, who had supported the seditious followers of Aristobulus, and it was Antipater who advised him to do so. Now this Antipater married a wife of an eminent family among the Arabissus, whose name was Cyprus, and had four sons born to him by her, Phasilus and Herod, who was afterwards king, and, besides these, Joseph and Pheroras, and he had a daughter whose name was Salome. Now as he made himself friends among the men of power everywhere, by the kind offices he did them, and the hospitable manner that he treated them, so did he contract the greatest friendship with the king of Arabia, by marrying his relation, insomuch that when he made war with Aristobulus, he sent and entrusted his children with him. So when Cassius had forced Alexander to come to terms, and to be quiet, he returned to Euphrates, in order to prevent the Parthians from repassing it, concerning which matter we shall speak elsewhere. Footnote. This citation is now wanting. End footnote. End of Book 1, Chapters 7 and 8. Book 1, Chapters 9 and 10 of The Wars of the Jews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus Translated by William Whiston Book 1, Chapters 9 and 10 Chapter 9 Aristobulus is taken off by Pompey's friends, as is his son Alexander by Scipio. Antipater cultivates a friendship with Caesar, after Pompey's death. He also performs great actions in that war, wherein he assisted Mithridates. 1. Now, upon the flight of Pompey and of the Senate beyond the Ionian Sea, Caesar got Rome and the empire under his power, and released Aristobulus from his bonds. He also committed two legions to him, and sent him in haste into Syria, as hoping that by his means he should easily conquer that country, and the parts adjoining to Judea. But envy prevented any effect of Aristobulus's alacrity, and the hopes of Caesar, for he was taken off by poison given him by those of Pompey's party, and, for a long while, he had not so much as a burial vouchsafed him in his own country. But his dead body lay above ground, preserved in honey, until it was sent to the Jews by Antony, in order to be buried in the royal sepulchres. 2. His son Alexander also was beheaded by Scipio at Antioch, and that by the command of Pompey, and upon an accusation laid against him before his tribunal, for the mischiefs he had done to the Romans. But Ptolemy, the son of Menius, who was then ruler of Chalcis, under Libanus, took his brethren to him by sending his son Philippio for them to Ascalon, who took Antigonus, as well as his sisters, away from Aristobulus's wife, and brought them to his father, and falling in love with the youngest daughter, he married her, and was afterwards slain by his father on her account. For Ptolemy himself, after he had slain his son, married her, whose name was Alexandra, on account of which marriage he took the greater care of her brother and sister. 3. Now, after Pompey was dead, Antipater changed sides, and cultivated a friendship with Caesar. And since Mithridates of Pergamus, with the forces he led against Egypt, was excluded from the avenues about Pelusium, 
and was forced to stay at Asielan. He persuaded the Arabians, among whom he had lived, to assist him, and came himself to him at the head of three thousand armed men. He also encouraged the men of power in Syria to come to his assistance, as also to the inhabitants of Libanus, Ptolemy and Jamblicus, and another Ptolemy, by which means the cities of that country came readily into this war, insomuch that Mithridates ventured now, in dependence upon the additional strength that he had gotten by Antipater, to march forward to Pelusium, and when they refused him a passage through it, he besieged the city, in the attack of which place Antipater principally signalized himself, for he brought down that part of the wall which was over against him, and leaped first of all into the city with the men that were about him. 4. Thus was Pelusium taken. But still, as they were marching on, those Egyptian Jews that inhabited the country called the country of Anias stopped them. Then did Antipater not only persuade them not to stop them, but to afford provisions for their army, on which account even the people about Memphis could not fight against them, but of their own accord joined Mithridates. Whereupon he went round about Delta, and fought the rest of the Egyptians at a place called the Jews' camp. Nay, when he was in danger in the battle with all his right wing, Antipater wheeled about and came along the bank of the river to him, for he had beaten those that opposed him as he led the left wing. After which success he fell upon those that pursued Mithridates, and slew a great many of them, and pursued the remainder so far that he took their camp, while he lost no more than four score of his own men, as Mithridates lost during the pursuit that was made after him, about eight hundred. He was also himself saved unexpectedly, and became an unreproachable witness to Caesar of the great actions of Antipater. 5. Whereupon Caesar encouraged Antipater to undertake other hazardous enterprises for him, and that by giving him great commendations and hopes of reward. In all which enterprises he readily exposed himself to many dangers, and became a most courageous warrior, and had many wounds almost all over his body, as demonstrations of his valor. And when Caesar had settled the affairs of Egypt, and was returning into Syria again, he gave him the privilege of a Roman citizen, and freedom from taxes, and rendered him an object of admiration by the honors and marks of friendship he bestowed upon him. On this account it was that he also confirmed Hyrcanus in the high priesthood. Chapter 10. Caesar makes Antipater procurator of Judea, as does Antipater appoint Vesalius to be governor of Jerusalem, and Herod governor of Galilee who, in some time, was called to answer for himself before the Sanhedrin, where he is acquitted. Sextus Caesar is treacherously killed by Bassus, and is succeeded by Marcus. 1. About this time it was that Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, came to Caesar, and became, in a surprising manner, the occasion of Antipater's further advancement. For, whereas he ought to have lamented that his father appeared to have been poisoned on account of his quarrels with Pompey, and to have complained of Scipio's barbarity towards his brother, and not to mix any invidious passion when he was suing for mercy. Besides those things, he came before Caesar, and accused Hyrcanus and Antipater, how they had driven him and his brethren entirely out of their native country, and had acted in a great many instances unjustly and extravagantly with relation to their nation. And that as to the assistance they had sent him into Egypt, it was not done out of good will to him, but out of the fear they were in from former quarrels, and in order to gain pardon for their friendship to his enemy Pompey. 2. Hereupon Antipater threw away his garments, 
and showed the multitude of the wounds he had, and said that as to his good will to Caesar, he had no occasion to say a word, because his body cried aloud, though he said nothing himself, that he wondered at Antigonus's boldness, while he was himself no other than the son of an enemy to the Romans, and of a fugitive, and had it by inheritance from his father to be fond of innovations and seditions, that he should undertake to accuse other men before the Roman governor, and endeavor to gain some advantages to himself, when he sought to be contented that he was suffered to live. For that the reason of his desire of governing public affairs was not so much because he was in want of it, but because, if he could once obtain the same, he might stir up a sedition among the Jews, and use what he should gain from the Romans to the disservice of those that gave it him. 3. When Caesar heard this, he declared Hyrcanus to be the most worthy of the high priesthood, and gave leave to Antipater to choose what authority he pleased. But he left the determination of such dignity to him that bestowed the dignity upon him. So he was constituted procurator of all Judea, and obtained leave, moreover, to rebuild those walls of his country that had been thrown down. Footnote. What is here noted by Hudson and Spanheim, that this grant of leave to rebuild the walls of the cities of Judea was made by Julius Caesar, not as here to Antipater, but to Hyrcanus, has hardly an appearance of a contradiction. Antipater being now perhaps considered only as Hyrcanus's deputy and minister, although he afterwards made him a cipher of Hyrcanus, and, under great decency of behavior to him, took the real authority to himself. End footnote. These honorary grants Caesar sent orders to have engraved in the capital, that they might stand there as indications of his own justice, and of the virtue of Antipater. 4. But as soon as Antipater had conducted Caesar out of Syria, he returned to Judea, and the first thing he did was to rebuild that wall of his own country, Jerusalem, which Pompey had overthrown, and then to go over the country, and to quiet the tumults that were therein, where he partly threatened, and partly advised every one, and told them that in case they would submit to Hyrcanus, they would live happily and peaceably, and enjoy what they possessed, and that with universal peace and quietness, but that in case they hearkened to such as had some frigid hopes by raising new troubles to get themselves some gain, they should then find him to be their lord, instead of their procurator, and find Hyrcanus to be a tyrant instead of a king, and both the Romans and Caesar to be their enemies, instead of rulers, for that they would not suffer him to be removed from the government, whom they had made their governor. And, at the same time that he said this, he settled the affairs of the country by himself, because he saw that Hyrcanus was inactive, and not fit to manage the affairs of the kingdom. So he constituted his eldest son, Phasaelus, governor of Jerusalem, and of the parts about it. He also sent his next son, Herod, who was very young, footnote, or twenty-five years of age, Many writers of the Roman history give an account of this murder of Sextus Caesar and of the war of Apamia upon that occasion. They are cited in Dean Aldrich's note. End footnote. With equal authority into Galilee. 5. Now Herod was an active man, and soon found proper materials for his active spirit to work upon. And therefore he found that Hezekiah, the head of the robbers, ran over the neighboring parts of Syria with a great band of men, he caught him and slew him, and many more of the robbers with him, which exploit was chiefly grateful to the Syrians, insomuch that hymns were sung in Herod's commendation, both in the villages and in the cities, as having procured their quietness, 
and having preserved what they possessed to them, on which occasion he became acquainted with Sextus Caesar, a kinsman of the great Caesar, and president of Syria. A just emulation of his glorious actions excited Phasaelus also to imitate him. Accordingly, he procured the good will of the inhabitants of Jerusalem by his own management of the city affairs, and did not abuse his power in any disagreeable manner, whence it came to pass that the nation paid Antipater the respects that were due only to a king, and the honors they all yielded him were equal to the honors due to an absolute lord. Yet did he not abate any part of that good will or fidelity which he owed to Hyrcanus. However, he found it impossible to escape envy in such his prosperity. 6. However, he found it impossible to escape envy in such his prosperity, for the glory of these young men affected even Hyrcanus himself already privately, though he said nothing of it to anybody. But what he principally was grieved at was the great actions of Herod, and that so many messengers came one before another, and informed him of the great reputation he got in all his undertakings. There were also many people in the royal palace itself who inflamed his envy at him, those, I mean, who were obstructed in their designs by the prudence either of the young men or of Antipater. These men said that by committing the public affairs to the management of Antipater and of his sons, he sat down with nothing but the bare name of a king, without any of its authority, and they asked him how long he would so far mistake himself as to breed up kings against his own interest. For that they did not now conceal their government of affairs any longer, but were plainly lords of the nation, and had thrust him out of his authority, that this was the case when Herod slew so many men without his giving any command to do it, either by word of mouth, or by his letter, or this in contradiction to the law of the Jews, who therefore, in case he be not a king, but a private man, still ought to come to his trial, and answer it to him, and to the laws of his country, which do not permit any one to be killed till he hath been condemned in judgment. 7. Now Hyrcanus was, by degrees, inflamed with these discourses, and at length could bear no longer, but he summoned Herod to take his trial. Accordingly, by his father's advice, and as soon as the affairs of Galilee would give him leave, he came up to Jerusalem, when he had first placed garrisons in Galilee. However, he came with a sufficient body of soldiers, so many indeed that he might not appear to have with him an army able to overthrow Hyrcanus's government, nor yet so few as to expose him to the insults of those that envied him. However, Sextus Caesar was in fear for the young man, lest he should be taken by his enemies and brought to punishment. So he sent some to denounce expressly to Hyrcanus, that he should acquit Herod of the capital charge against him, who acquitted him accordingly, as being otherwise inclined also so to do, for he loved Herod. 8. But Herod, supposing that he had escaped punishment without the consent of the king, retired to Sextus, to Damascus, and got everything ready, in order not to obey him if he should summon him again, whereupon those that were evil disposed irritated Hyrcanus, and told him that Herod was gone away in anger, and was prepared to make war upon him. And as the king believed what they said, he knew not what to do, since he saw his antagonist was stronger than he was himself. And now, since Herod was made general of Colossyria and Samaria by Sextus Caesar, he was formidable, not only from the good will which the nation bore him, but by the power he himself had, insomuch that Hyrcanus fell into the utmost degree of terror, 
and expected he would presently march against him with his army. 9. Nor was he mistaken in the conjecture he made, out of the anger he bare him for his threatening him with the accusation in a public court, and led it to Jerusalem, in order to throw Hyrcanus down from his kingdom. And this he had soon done, unless his father and brother had gone out together and broken the force of his fury, and this by exhorting him to carry his revenge no further than to threatening and affrighting, but to spare the king, under whom he had been advanced to such a degree of power, and that he ought not to be so much provoked at his being tried, as to forget to be thankful that he was acquitted, nor so long to think upon what was of a melancholy nature, as to be ungrateful for his deliverance. And if we ought to reckon that God is the arbitrator of success in war, an unjust cause is of more disadvantage than an army can be of advantage, and that therefore he ought not to be entirely confident of success in a case where he is to fight against his king, his supporter, and one that had often been his benefactor, and that had never been severe to him any otherwise than as he had hearkened to evil counsellors, and this no further than by bringing a shadow of injustice upon him. So Herod was prevailed upon by these arguments, and supposed what he had already done was sufficient for his future hopes, and that he had enough shown his power to the nation. 10. In the meantime, there was a disturbance among the Romans about Apamia, and a civil war occasioned by the treacherous slaughter of Sextus Caesar by Cecilius Bassus, which he perpetrated out of his goodwill to Pompey. He also took the authority over his forces, but as the rest of Caesar's commanders attacked Bassus with their whole army in order to punish him for the murder of Caesar, Antipater also sent them assistance by his sons, both on account of him that was murdered, and on account of that Caesar who was still alive, both of which were their friends. And as this war grew to be of considerable length, Marcus came out of Italy as successor to Sextus. End of Book 1, Chapters 9 and 10Book 1, Chapters 11 and 12 of The Wars of the Jews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus. Translated by William Whiston. Book 1, Chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11. Herod is made procurator of all Syria. Malichus is afraid of him, and takes Antipater off by poison, whereupon the tribunes of the soldiers are prevailed with to kill him. 1. There was at this time a mighty war raised among the Romans upon the sudden and treacherous slaughter of Caesar by Cassius and Brutus, after he had held the government for three years and seven months. Footnote. In the Antiquities, the duration of the reign of Julius Caesar is three years, six months, but here, three years, seven months, beginning nightly, says Dean Aldrich, from his second dictatorship. It is probable the real duration might be three years and between six and seven months. End footnote. Upon this murder there were very great agitations, and the great men were mightily at difference one with another, and every one betook himself to that party where they had the greatest hopes of their own, of advancing themselves. Accordingly, Cassius came into Syria, in order to receive the forces that were at Apamia, where he procured a reconciliation between Bassus and Marcus, 
and the legions which were at difference with him. So he raised the siege of Apamia, and took upon him the command of the army, and went about exacting tribute of the cities, and demanding their money to such a degree as they were not able to bear. 2. So he gave command that the Jews should bring in seven hundred talents, whereupon Antipater, out of his dread of Cassius's threats, parted the raising of the sum among his sons, and among others of his acquaintance, and to be done immediately. And among them he required one Malichus, who was at enmity with him, to do his part also, which necessity forced him to do. Now Herod, in the first place, mitigated the passion of Cassius by bringing his share out of Galilee, which was a hundred talents, on which account he was in the highest favour with him. And when he reproached the rest for being tardy, he was angry at the cities themselves. So he made slaves of Gophna and Emmaus, and two others of less note. Nay, he proceeded as if he would kill Malichus, because he had not made greater haste in exacting his tribute. But Antipater prevented the ruin of this man, and of the other cities, and got into Cassius's favour by bringing in a hundred talents immediately. Footnote. It appears evidently by Josephus' accounts, both here and in his antiquities, that this Cassius, one of Caesar's murderers, was a bitter oppressor and exactor of tribute in Judea. These 700 talents amount to about 300,000 pounds sterling, and are about half the yearly revenues of King Herod afterwards. It also appears that Galilee then paid no more than 100 talents, or the seventh part of the entire sum to be levied in all the country. End footnote. 3. However, when Cassius was gone, Malichus forgot the kindness that Antipater had done him, and laid frequent plots against him that had saved him, as making haste to get him out of the way, who was an obstacle to his wicked practices. But Antipater was so much afraid of the power and cunning of the man, that he went beyond Jordan, in order to get an army to guard himself against his treacherous designs. But when Malichus was caught in his plot, he put upon Antipater's sons by his impudence, for he thoroughly deluded Versalius, who was the guardian of Jerusalem, and Herod, who was entrusted with the weapons of war, and this by a great many excuses and oaths, and persuaded them to procure his reconciliation to his father. Thus he was preserved again by Antipater, who dissuaded Marcus, the then president of Syria, from his resolution of killing Malichus, on account of his attempts for innovation. 4. Upon the war between Cassius and Brutus on one side, against the young Caesar, Augustus, and Antony on the other, Cassius and Marcus got together an army out of Syria. And because Herod was likely to have a great share in providing necessaries, they then made him procurator of all Syria, and gave him an army of foot and horse. Cassius promised him also, that after the war was over, he would make him king of Judea. But it so happened that the power and hopes of his son became the cause of his perdition, for as Malichus was afraid of this, he corrupted one of the king's cupbearers with money to give a poisoned potion to Antipater. So he became a sacrifice to Malichus's wickedness and died at a feast. He was a man in other respects active in the management of affairs, and one that recovered the government to Hyrcanus and preserved it in his hands. However, Malichus, when he was suspected of poisoning Antipater, and when the multitude was angry with him for it, denied it, and made the people believe he was not guilty. He also prepared to make a greater figure, and raised soldiers, for he did not suppose that Herod would be quiet, 
who indeed came upon him with an army presently, in order to avenge his father's death. But upon hearing the advice of his brother Phasaelus, not to punish him in an open manner, lest the multitude should fall into a sedition, he admitted of Malichus's apology, and professed that he cleared him of that suspicion. He also made a pompous funeral for his father. So Herod went to Samaria, which was then in a tumult, and settled the city in peace, after which, at the Pentecost festival, he returned to Jerusalem, having his armed men with him. Hereupon Hyrcanus, at the request of Malichus, who feared his reproach, forbade them to introduce foreigners to mix themselves with people of the country while they were purifying themselves. But Herod despised the pretense, and him that gave that command, and came in by night. Upon which Malichus came to him, and bewailed Antipater. Herod also made him believe, he admitted of his lamentations as real, although he had much ado to restrain his passion at him. However, he did himself bewail the murder of his father in his letters to Cassius, who on other accounts also hated Malichus. Cassius sent him word back that he should avenge his father's death upon him, and privately gave orders to the tribunes that were under him, that they should assist Herod in a righteous action he was about. 7. And because, upon the taking of Laodicea by Cassius, the men of power were gotten together from all quarters, with presents of crowns in their hands, Herod allotted this time for the punishment of Malichus. When Malichus suspected that, and was at Tyre, he resolved to withdraw his son privately from among the Tyrians, who was a hostage there, while he got ready to fly away into Judea. The despair he was in of escaping excited him to think of greater things, for he hoped that he should raise the nation to a revolt from the Romans, while Cassius was busy about the war against Antony, and that he should easily depose Hyrcanus and get the crown for himself. 8. But fate laughed at the hopes he had, for Herod foresaw what he was so zealous about, and invited both Hyrcanus and him to supper. But calling one of the principal servants that stood by him to him, he sent him out, as though it were to get things ready for supper, but in reality to give notice beforehand about the plot that was laid against him. Accordingly they called to mind what orders Cassius had given them, and went out of the city with their swords in their hands upon the seashore, where they encompassed Malichus round about, and killed him with many wounds. Upon which Hyrcanus was immediately affrighted, till he swooned away and fell down at the surprise he was in, and it was with difficulty that he was recovered, when he asked who it was that killed Malichus. And when one of the tribunes replied that it was done by the command of Cassius, then, said he, Cassius has saved both me and my country by cutting off one that was laying plots against them both. Whether he spake according to his own sentiments, or whether his fear was such that he was obliged to commend the action by saying so, is uncertain. However, by this method Herod inflicted punishment upon Malichus. Chapter 12 Phasaelus is too hard for Felix. Herod also overcomes Antigonus in battle. And the Jews accuse both Herod and Phasaelus, but Antonius acquits them and makes them tetrarchs. 1. When Cassius was gone out of Syria, another sedition arose at Jerusalem, wherein Felix assaulted Phasaelus with an army, that he might revenge the death of Malichus upon Herod by falling upon his brother. Now Herod happened then to be with Fabius, the governor of Damascus, and as he was going to his brother's assistance, he was detained by sickness, 
In the meantime, Phasaelus was by himself too hard for Felix, and reproached Hyrcanus on account of his ingratitude, both for what assistance he had afforded Malichus, and for overlooking Malichus's brother, when he possessed himself of the fortress. For he had gotten a great many of them already, and among them the strongest of them all, Masada. 2. However, nothing could be sufficient for him against the force of Herod, who, as soon as he was recovered, took the other fortresses again, and drove him out of Masada in the posture of a supplicant. He also drove away Marion, the tyrant of the Tyrians, out of Galilee, when he had already possessed himself of three fortified places. But as to those Tyrians whom he had caught, he preserved them all alive, nay, some of them he gave presents to, and so sent them away, and thereby procured good will to himself from the city, and hatred to the tyrant. Marion had indeed obtained that tyrannical power of Cassius, who set tyrants over all Syria. Footnote. Here we see that Cassius set tyrants over all Syria, so that his assisting to destroy Caesar does not seem to have proceeded from his true zeal for public liberty, but from a desire to be a tyrant himself. End footnote. And out of hatred to Herod it was that he assisted Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, and principally on Fabius's account, whom Antigonus had made his assistant by money, and had him accordingly on his side when he made his descent. But it was Ptolemy, the kinsman of Antigonus, that supplied all that he wanted. 3. When Herod had fought against these in the avenues of Judea, he was conqueror in the battle, and drove away Antigonus, and returned to Jerusalem, beloved by everybody for the glorious action he had done. For those who did not before favor him did join themselves to him now, because of his marriage into the family of Hyrcanus. For as he had formerly married a wife out of his own country of no ignoble blood, who was called Doris, of whom he begat Antipater, so did he now marry Mariamne, the daughter of Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, and the granddaughter of Hyrcanus, and was become thereby a relation of the king. 4. But when Caesar and Antony had slain Cassius near Philippi, and Caesar was gone to Italy, and Antony to Asia, amongst the rest of the cities which sent ambassadors to Antony unto Bithynia, the great men of the Jews came also, and accused Phasaelus and Herod, that they kept the government by force, and that Hyrcanus had no more than an honourable name. Herod appeared ready to answer this accusation, and having made Antony his friend by the large sums of money which he gave him, he brought him to such a temper as not to hear the others speak against him, and thus did they part at this time. 5. However, after this, there came a hundred of the principal men among the Jews to Daphne by Antioch to Antony, who was already in love with Cleopatra to the degree of slavery. These Jews put those men that were the most potent, both in dignity and eloquence, foremost, and accused the brethren. Footnote, Phasaelus and Herod, end footnote. But Messala opposed them and defended his brethren, and that while Hyrcanus stood by him, on account of his relation to them. When Antony had heard both sides, he asked Hyrcanus which party was the fittest to govern, who replied that Herod and his party were the fittest. Antony was glad of that answer, for he had been formally treated in an hospitable and obliging manner by his father Antipater when he marched into Judea with Gabinius. So he constituted the brethren tetrarchs and committed to them the government of Judea. 6. But when the ambassadors had indignation at this procedure, Antony took fifteen of them and put them into custody, whom he was also going to kill presently, 
and the rest he drove away with disgrace, on which occasions a still greater tumult arose at Jerusalem. So they sent again a thousand ambassadors to Tyre, where Antony now abode, as he was marching to Jerusalem. Upon those men who made a clamour he sent out the governor of Tyre, and ordered him to punish all that he could catch of them, and to settle those in the administration whom he had made tetrarchs. 7. But before this, Herod and Hyrcanus went out upon the seashore, and earnestly desired of these ambassadors that they would neither bring ruin upon themselves, nor war upon their native country, by their rash contentions. And when they grew still more outrageous, Antony sent out armed men, and slew a great many, and wounded more of them, of whom those that were slain were buried by Hyrcanus as were the wounded put under the care of physicians by him. Yet would not those that had escaped be quiet still, but put the affairs of the city into such disorder, and so provoked Antony, that he slew those whom he had in bonds also. End of Book 1, Chapters 11 and 12book 1 chapters 13 and 14 of the wars of the jews this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by morgan scorpion the wars of the jews by josephus translated by william wiston book 1 chapters 13 and 14 Chapter 13 The Parthians bring Antigonus back into Judea, and cast Hyrcanus and Phasaelus into prison. The flight of Herod, and the taking of Jerusalem, and what Hyrcanus and Phasaelus suffered. 1. Now two years afterward, when Barzaphanes, a governor amongst the Parthians, and Peorus, the king's son, had possessed himself of Syria, and when Lysanias had already succeeded upon the death of his father Ptolemy, the son of Menaeus, in the government of Chalcis, he prevailed with the governor, by a promise of a thousand talents and five hundred women, to bring back Antigonus to his kingdom and to turn Hyrcanus out of it. Pacorus was by these means induced so to do, and marched along the sea coast, while he ordered Barzaphanes to fall upon the Jews as he went along the Mediterranean part of the country. But of the maritime people, the Tyrians would not receive Pacorus, although those of Ptolemaeus and Sidon had received him. So he committed a troop of his horse to a certain cupbearer belonging to the royal family, of his own name, Pacorus, and gave him orders to march into Judea, in order to learn the state of affairs among their enemies, and to help Antigonus when he should want their assistance. 2. Now as these men were ravaging Carmel, Many of the Jews ran together to Antigonus, and showed themselves ready to make an incursion into the country. So he sent them before into that place called Drymus, the woodland. Footnote. This large and noted wood, or woodland, belonging to Carmel, called Apego by the Septuagint, is mentioned in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 19.23, Isaiah 37 and 24 and by I. Strabo, as both Aldrich and Spanheim here remark very pertinently, end footnote, to seize upon the place, whereupon a battle was fought between them, and they drove the enemy away, and pursued them, and ran after them as far as Jerusalem, and as their numbers increased, they proceeded as far as the king's palace. But as Hyrcanus and Phasaelus received them with a strong body of men, there happened a battle in the market-place, 
in which Herod's party beat the enemy, and shut them up in the temple, and set sixty men in the houses adjoining as a guard to them. But the people that were tumultuous against the brethren came in, and burnt those men, while Herod, in his rage for killing them, attacked and slew many of the people, till one party made incursions on the other by turns, day by day, in the way of ambushes, and slaughters were made continually among them. 3. Now when that festival which we call Pentecost was at hand, all the places about the temple, and the whole city, was full of a multitude of people that were come out of the country, and which were the greatest part of them armed also, at which time Phasaelus guarded the wall, and Herod, with a few, guarded the royal palace. And when he made an assault upon his enemies, as they were out of their ranks, on the north quarter of the city, he slew a very great number of them, and put them all to flight. And some of them he shut up within the city, and others within the outward rampart. In the meantime, Antigonus desired that Pecorus might be admitted to be a reconciler between them, and Phasaelus was prevailed upon to admit the Parthian into the city with five hundred horse, and to treat him in an hospitable manner, who pretended that he came to quell the tumult, but in reality he came to assist Antigonus. However, he laid a plot for Phasaelus, and persuaded him to go as an ambassador to Bazathanes, in order to put an end to the war although Herod was very earnest with him to the contrary, and exhorted him to kill the plotter, but not to expose himself to the snares he had laid for him, because the barbarians are naturally perfidious. However, Pacorus went out and took Hyrcanus with him, that he might be the less suspected. He also left some of the horsemen, called the freemen, with Herod, and conducted Phasaelus with the rest. Footnote these accounts that the Parthians fought chiefly on horseback, and that only some few of their soldiers were free men, perfectly agree with Trogus Pompeius, as Dean Aldrich well observes on this place. End footnote. 4. But now, when they were come to Galilee, they found that the people of that country had revolted, and were in arms, who came very cunningly to their leader, and besought him to conceal his treacherous intentions by an obliging behaviour to them. Accordingly, he at first made them presents, and afterward, as they went away, laid ambushes for them. And when they were come to one of the maritime cities called Ectipon, they perceived that a plot was laid for them, for they were there informed of the promise of a thousand talents, and how Antigonus had devoted the greatest number of the women that were with them, among the five hundred, to the Parthians. They also perceived that an ambush was always laid for them by the barbarians in the night time. They had also been seized on before this, unless they had waited for the seizure of Herod first at Jerusalem, because if he were once informed of this treachery of theirs, he would take care of himself. Nor was this a mere report, but they saw the guards already not far off them. 5. Nor would Phasaelus think of forsaking Hyrcanus and flying away, though Ophelius earnestly persuaded him to it. For this man had learned the whole scheme of the plot from Saramala, the richest of all the Syrians. But Phasaelus went up to the Parphilian governor, and reproached him to his face for laying this treacherous plot against them, and chiefly because he had done it for money. And he promised him that he would give him more money for their preservation, than Antigonus had promised to give for the kingdom. But the sly Parthian endeavoured to remove all this suspicion by apologies and by oaths, and then went to the other Pacorus. Immediately after which those Parthians who were left, and had it in charge, 
seized upon Phasaelus and Hyrcanus, who could do no more than curse their perfidiousness and their perjury. 6. In the meantime the cupbearer was sent back, and laid a plot how to seize upon Herod, by deluding him, and getting him out of the city, as he was commanded to do. But Herod suspected the barbarians from the beginning, and having then received intelligence that a messenger, who was bringing him the letters that informed him of the treachery intended, had fallen among the enemy, he would not go out of the city. So Pacorus said very positive that he ought to go out, and meet the messengers that had brought the letters, for that the enemy had not taken them, and that the contents of them were not accounts of any plots upon them, but of what Vesalius had done. Yet had he heard from another that his brother was seized, and Alexandra, footnote, Mariamne here, in the copies, end footnote, the shrewdest woman in the world, Hyrcanus's daughter, begged of him that he would not go out, nor trust himself to those barbarians, who now were come to make an attempt upon him openly. 7. Now as Pacorus and his friends were considering how they might bring their plot to bear privately, because it was not possible to circumvent a man of so great prudence by openly attacking him, Herod prevented them, and went off with the persons that were the most nearly related to him by night, and this without their enemies being apprised of it. But as soon as the Parthians perceived it, they pursued after them, and as he gave orders for his mother and sister and the young woman who was betrothed to him, with her mother and his youngest brother, to make the best of their way, he himself, with his servants, took all the care they could to keep off the barbarians, and when at every assault he had slain a great many of them, he came to the stronghold of Masada. 8. Nay, he found by experience that the Jews fell more heavily upon him than did the Parthians, and created him troubles perpetually, and this ever since he was gotten sixty furlongs from the city. These sometimes brought it to a sort of regular battle. Now in the place where Herod beat them, and killed a great number of them, there he afterward built a citadel, in memory of the great actions he did there, and adorned it with the most costly palaces, and erected very strong fortifications, and called it, from his own name, Herodium. Now as they were in their flight, many joined themselves to him every day, and at a place called Thressa of Idumea, his brother Joseph met him, and advised him to ease himself of a great number of his followers because Masada would not contain so great a multitude, which were above nine thousand. Herod complied with this advice, and sent away the most cumbersome part of his retinue, that they might go into Idumea, and give them provisions for their journey. But he got safe to the fortress with his nearest relations, and retained with him only the stoutest of his followers. And there it was that he left eight hundred of his men as a guard for the women, and provisions sufficient for a siege but he made haste himself to Petra of Arabia. 9. As for the Parthians in Jerusalem, they betook themselves to plundering, and fell upon the houses of those that were fled, and upon the king's palace, and spared nothing but Hyrcanus's money, which was not above three hundred talents. They lighted on other men's money also, but not so much as they hoped for, for Herod having a long while had a suspicion of the perfidiousness of the barbarians, had taken care to have what was most splendid among his treasures conveyed to Idumea, as every one belonging to him had in like manner done also. But the Parthians proceeded to that degree of injustice, as to fill the country with war without denouncing it, and to demolish the city of Marissa, and not only to set up Antigonus for king, but to deliver Thessalus and Hyrcanus bound into his hands, 
in order to their being tormented by him. Antigonus himself also bit off Hyrcanus's ears with his own teeth, as he fell down upon his knees to him, so that he might never be able upon any mutation of affairs to take the high priesthood again, for the high priests that officiated were to be complete and without blemish. 10. However, he failed in his purpose of abusing Thessalius by reason of his courage, for though he had neither had the command of his sword nor of his hands, he prevented all abuses by dashing his head against a stone. So he demonstrated himself to be Herod's own brother, and Hyrcanus a most degenerate relation, and died with great bravery, and made the end of his life agreeable to the actions of it. There is also another report about his end, viz., that he recovered of that stroke, and that a surgeon who was sent by Antigonus to heal him filled the wound with poisonous ingredients, and so killed him. Whichsoever of these deaths he came to, the beginning of it was glorious. It is also reported that before he expired he was informed by a certain poor woman how Herod had escaped out of their hands, and that he said thereupon, I now die with comfort, since I leave behind me one alive who will avenge me of mine enemies. 11. This was the death of Thessalius. But the Parthians, although they had failed of the women they chiefly desired, yet did they put the government of Jerusalem into the hands of Antigonus, and took away Hyrcanus, and bound him, and carried him to Parthia. Chapter 14 When Herod is rejected in Arabia, he makes haste to Rome, where Antony and Caesar join their interest to make him king. 1. Now Herod did the more zealously pursue his journey into Arabia, as making haste to get money of the king, while his brother was yet alive, by which money alone it was that he hoped to prevail upon the covetous temper of the barbarians to spare Thessalius. For he reasoned thus with himself, that if the Arabian king was too forgetful of his father's friendship with him, and was too covetous to make him a free gift, he would however borrow of him as much as might redeem his brother, and put into his hands, as a pledge, the son of him that was to be redeemed. Accordingly, he led his brother's son along with him, who was of the age of seven years. Now he was ready to give three hundred talents for his brother, and intended to desire the intercession of the Tyrians to get them accepted. However, fate had been too quick for his diligence, and since Thessalius was dead, Herod's brotherly love was now in vain. Moreover, he was not able to find any lasting friendship among the Arabians, for their king, Malichus, sent to him immediately, and commanded him to return back out of his country, and used the name of the Parthians as a pretense for so doing, as though these had denounced to him by the ambassadors to cast Herod out of Arabia, while in reality they had a mind to keep back what they owed to Antipater, and not be obliged to make requitals to his sons for the free gifts the father had made them. He also took the impudent advice of those who, equally with himself, were willing to deprive Herod of what Antipater had deposited among them, and these men were the most potent of all whom he had in his kingdom. 2. So when Herod had found that the Arabians were his enemies, and this for those very reasons whence he hoped they would have been the most friendly, and had given them such an answer as his passion suggested, he returned back and went to Egypt. Now he lodged the first evening at one of the temples of that country, in order to meet with those whom he left behind. But on the next day word was brought to him, as he was going to Rhinocurura, that his brother was dead, and how he came by his death. 
and when he had lamented him as much as his present circumstances could bear, he soon laid aside such cares, and proceeded on his journey. But now, after some time, the king of Arabia repented of what he had done, and sent presently away messengers to call him back. Herod had prevented them, and was come to Pelusium, where he could not obtain a passage from those that lay with the fleet, so he besought their captains to let him go by them. Accordingly, out of the reverence they bore to the fame and dignity of the man, they conducted him to Alexandria, and when he came into the city he was received by Cleopatra with great splendor, who hoped he might be persuaded to be commander of her forces in the expedition she was now about. But he rejected the queen's solicitations, and being neither affrighted at the height of that storm which then happened, nor at the tumults that were now in Italy, he sailed for Rome. 3. But as he was in great peril about Pamphylia, and obliged to cast out of the greatest part of the ship's lading, he with difficulty got safe to Rhodes, a place which had been grievously harassed in the war with Cassius. He was there received by his friends Ptolemy and Sapinius, and although he was then in want of money, he fitted up a three-decked ship of very great magnitude, wherein he and his friends sailed to Brundisium. Footnote. This Brentesium, or Brundisium, has coins still preserved, on which is written, as Spanheim informs us. End footnote. And went thence to Rome with all speed, where he first of all went to Antony, on account of the friendship his father had with him, and laid before him the calamities of himself and his family, and that he had left his nearest relations besieged in a fortress, and had sailed to him through a storm to make supplication to him for assistance. 4. Hereupon Antony was moved to compassion at the change that had been made in Herod's affairs, and this both upon his calling to mind how hospitably he had been treated by Antipater, but more especially on account of Herod's own virtue. So he then resolved to get him made king of the Jews, whom he had himself formerly made tetrarch. The contest also that he had with Antigonus was another inducement, and that of no less weight than the great regard he had for Herod, for he looked upon Antigonus as a seditious person, and an enemy of the Romans. And as for Caesar, Herod found him better prepared than Antony, as remembering very fresh the wars he had gone through together with his father, the hospitable treatment he had met with from him, and the entire good will he had shown to him, besides the activity which he saw in Herod himself. So he called the Senate together, wherein Messalus, and after him Atratinus, produced Herod before them, and gave a full account of the merits of his father, and his own good will to the Romans. At the same time they demonstrated that Antigonus was their enemy, not only because he soon quarrelled with them, but because he now overlooked the Romans, and took the government by means of the Parthians. These reasons greatly moved the Senate, at which juncture Antony came in, and told them that it was for their advantage in the Parthian war that Herod should be king, so they gave all their votes for it. And when the Senate was separated, Antony and Caesar went out with Herod between them, while the consul and the rest of the magistrates went before them in order to offer sacrifices, and to lay the decree in the capital. Antony also made a feast for Herod on the first day of his reign. End of Book 1, Chapters 13 and 14book 1 chapters 15 and 16 of the wars of the jews this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer 
please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus. Translated by William Wisdom. Book 1, Chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 15. Antigonus besieges those that were in Masada, whom Herod frees from confinement when he came back from Rome, and presently marches to Jerusalem, where he finds Silo corrupted by bribes. Now during this time Antigonus besieged those that were in Masada, who had all other necessities in sufficient quantity, but were in want of water, on which account Joseph, Herod's brother, was disposed to run away to the Arabians, with two hundred of his own friends, because he had heard that Malachus repented of his offences with regard to Herod, and he had been so quick as to have been gone out of the fortress already, unless, on that very night when he was going away, there had fallen a great deal of rain, insomuch that his reservoirs were full of water, and so he was under no necessity of running away. After which, therefore, they made an eruption upon Antigonus's party, and slew a great many of them, some in open battles, and some in private ambush. Nor had they always success in their attempts, for sometimes they were beaten and ran away. 2. In the meantime, Ventidius, the Roman general, was sent out of Syria to restrain the incursions of the Parthians. And after he had done that, he came into Judea, in pretense indeed to assist Joseph and his party, but in reality to get money of Antigonus. And when he had pitched his camp very near to Jerusalem, as soon as he had got money enough, he went away with the greatest part of his forces. Yet still did he leave Silo with some part of them, lest if he had taken them all away, his taking of bribes might have been too openly discovered. Now Antigonus hoped that the Parthians would come again to his assistance, and therefore cultivated a good understanding with Silo in the meantime, lest any interruption should be given to his hopes. 3. Now by this time Herod had sailed out of Italy, and was come to Ptolemais, and as soon as he had gotten together no small army of foreigners, and of his own countrymen, he marched through Galilee against Antigonus, wherein he was assisted by Ventidius and Silo, both whom Delius, a person sent by Antony, footnote, this Delius is famous, or rather infamous, in the history of Mark Antony, as Spanheim and Aldrich here note, from the coins, from Plutarch and Dio, and footnote, persuaded to bring Herod into his kingdom. Now Ventidius was at this time among the cities, and composing the disturbances which had happened by means of the Parthians, as was Silo in Judea corrupted by the bribes that Antigonus had given him. Yet was not Herod himself destitute of power, but the number of his forces increased every day as he went along, and all Galilee, with few exceptions, joined themselves to him. So he proposed himself to set about his most necessary enterprise, and that was Masada, in order to deliver his relations from the siege they endured. But still Joppa stood in his way, and hindered his going thither, for it was necessary to take that city first, which was in the enemy's hands, that when he should go to Jerusalem, no fortress might be left in the enemy's power behind him. Silo also willingly joined him, as having now a plausible occasion of drawing off his forces from Jerusalem, and when the Jews pursued him and pressed upon him in his retreat, Herod made all excursion upon them with a small body of his men, and soon put them to flight, and saved Silo when he was in distress. 4. After this Herod took Joppa, 
and then made haste to Masada to free his relations. Now as he was marching, many came into him, induced by their friendship to his father, some by the reputation he had already gained himself, and some in order to repay the benefits they had received from them both. But still what engaged the greatest number on his side was the hopes from him when he should be established in his kingdom, so that he had gotten together already an army hard to be conquered. But Antigonus laid an ambush for him as he marched out, in which he did little or no harm to his enemies. However, he easily recovered his relations again that were in Masada, as well as the fortress Ressa, and then marched to Jerusalem. When the soldiers that were with Silo joined themselves to his own, as did many out of the city, from a dread of his power. 5. Now when he had pitched his camp on the west side of the city, the guards that were there shot their arrows and threw their darts at them, while others ran out in companies, and attacked those in the forefront. But Herod commanded proclamation to be made at the wall, that he was come for the good of the people and the preservation of the city, without any design to be revenged on his open enemies, but to grant oblivion to them, though they had been the most obstinate against him. Now the soldiers that were for Antigonus made a contrary clamour, and neither did permit anybody to hear that proclamation, nor to charge their party. So Antigonus gave orders to his forces to beat the enemy from the walls. Accordingly, they soon threw their darts at them from the towers and put them to flight. 6. And here it was that Silo discovered he had taken bribes, for he set many of the soldiers to clamour about their want of necessaries and to demand their pay, in order to buy themselves food, and to demand that he would lead them into places convenient for their winter quarters, because all the parts about the city were laid waste by the means of Antigonus's army, which had taken all things away. By this he moved the army, and attempted to get them off the siege. But Herod went to the captains that were under Silo, and to a great many of the soldiers, and begged of them not to leave him, who were sent thither by Caesar, and Antony, and the Senate, for that he would take care to have their wants supplied that very day. After the making of which entreaty, he went hastily into the country, and brought thither so great an abundance of necessaries, that he cut off all Silo's pretenses. And in order to provide that for the following days they should not want supplies, he sent to the people that were about Samaria, which city had joined itself to him, to bring corn and wine and oil and cattle to Jericho. When Antigonus heard of this, he sent some of his party with orders to hinder, and lay ambushes for these collectors of corn. This command was obeyed, and a great multitude of armed men were gathered together about Jericho, and lay upon the mountains, to watch those that brought the provisions. Yet was Herod not idle, but took with him ten cohorts, five of them were Romans, and five were Jewish cohorts, together with some mercenary troops intermixed among them, and besides those a few horsemen, and came to Jericho, and when he came he found the city deserted, but that there were five hundred men with their wives and children, who had taken possession of the tops of the mountains. These he took and dismissed them, while the Romans fell upon the rest of the city and plundered it, having found the houses full of all sorts of good things. So the king left a garrison at Jericho, and came back, and sent the Roman army into those cities which were come over to him, to take their winter quarters there, viz. into Judea, or Idumea, and Galilee, and Samaria. Antigonus also by bribes obtained of Silo to let a part of his army be received at Lydda, as a compliment to Antonius.
Chapter 16 Herod takes Sephoris and subdues the robbers that were in the caves. He after that avenges himself upon Machaerus, as upon an enemy of his, and goes to Antony as he was besieging Samosata. 1. So the Romans lived in plenty of all things, and rested from war. However, Herod did not lie at rest, but seized upon Idumea and kept it, with two thousand footmen and four hundred horsemen. And this he did by sending his brother Joseph thither, that no innovation might be made by Antigonus. He also removed his mother and all his relations who had been in Masada to Samaria, and when he had settled them securely, he marched to take the remaining parts of Galilee, and to drive away the garrisons placed there by Antigonus. 2. But when Herod had reached Sephoris, footnote, this Sephoris, the metropolis of Galilee, so often mentioned by Josephus, has coins still remaining, as Spanham here informs us. End footnote. In a very great snow, he took the city without any difficulty. The guards that should have kept it flying away before it was assaulted, where he gave an opportunity to his followers that had been in distress to refresh themselves, there being in that city a great abundance of necessaries. After which he hasted away to the robbers that were in the caves, who overran a great part of the country, and did as great mischief to its inhabitants as the war itself could have done. Accordingly he sent beforehand three cohorts of footmen and one troop of horsemen to the village Arbela, and came himself forty days afterwards with the rest of his forces. Footnote. This way of speaking, after forty days, is interpreted by Josephus himself, on the fortieth day. In like manner, when Josephus says, chapter 33, section 8, that Herod lived after he had ordered Antipater to be slain five days, this is by himself interpreted that he died on the fifth day afterwards. So also what is in this book, chapter 13, section 1, after two years is, on the second year, and Dean Aldrich here notes that this very way of speaking is familiar to Josephus. End footnote. Yet were not the enemy affrighted at his assault, but met him in arms, for their skill was that of warriors, but their boldness was the boldness of robbers. And therefore, when it came to a pitched battle, they put to flight Herod's left wing with their right one. But Herod, wheeling about on the sudden from his own right wing, came to their assistance, and both made his own left wing return back from its flight, and fell upon the pursuers, and called their courage, till they could not bear the attempts that were made directly upon them, and so turned back and ran away. 3. But Herod followed them, and slew them as he followed them, and destroyed a great part of them, till those that remained were scattered beyond the river Jordan, and Galilee was freed from the terrors they had been under, excepting from those that remained and lay concealed in caves, which required longer time ere they could be conquered in order to which Herod, in the first place, distributed the fruits of their former labours to the soldiers, and gave every one of them a hundred and fifty drachmae of silver, and a great deal more to their commanders, and sent them into their winter quarters. He also sent to his youngest brother Pharaoh to take care of a good market for them, where they might buy themselves provisions, and to build a wall about Alexandrium, who took care of both those injunctions accordingly. 4. In the meantime, Antony abode at Athens, while Ventidius called for Silo and Herod to come to the war against the Parthians, but ordered them first to settle the affairs of Judea. So Herod willingly dismissed Silo to go to Ventidius, but he made an expedition himself against those that lay in the caves. 
Now these caves were in the precipices of craggy mountains, and could not be come at from any side, since they had only some winding pathways, very narrow, by which they got up to them. But the rock that lay on their front had beneath it valleys of a vast depth, and of an almost perpendicular declivity, insomuch that the king was doubtful for a long time what to do, by reason of a kind of impossibility there was of attacking the place. Yet did he at length make use of a contrivance that was subject to the utmost hazard, for he let down the most hardy of his men in chests, and set them at the mouths of the dens. Now these men slew the robbers and their families, and when they made resistance, they sent in fire upon them, and burnt them, and as Herod was desirous of saving some of them, he had proclamation made that they should come and deliver themselves up to him. But not one of them came willingly to him, and of those that were compelled to come, many preferred death to captivity. And here a certain old man, the father of seven children, whose children, together with their mother, desired him to give them leave to go out, upon the assurance and right hand that was offered them, slew them after the following manner. He ordered every one of them to go out, and he stood himself at the cave's mouth, and slew that son of his perpetually who went out. Herod was near enough to see this sight, and his bowels of compassion were moved at it, and he stretched out his right hand to the old man, and besought him to spare his children. Yet did not he relent at all upon what he said, but over and above reproached Herod on the lowness of his descent, and slew his wife as well as his children. And when he had thrown their dead bodies down the precipice, he at last threw himself down after them. 5. By this means Herod subdued these caves, and the robbers that were in them. He then left there a part of his army, as many as he thought sufficient to prevent any sedition, and made Ptolemy their general, and returned to Samaria. He led also with him three thousand armed footmen, and six hundred horsemen against Antigonus. Now here those that used to raise tumults in Galilee, having liberty to do so upon his departure, fell unexpectedly upon Ptolemy, the general of his forces, and slew him. They also laid the country waste, and then retired to the bogs, and to places not easily to be found. But when Herod was informed of this insurrection, he came to the assistance of the country immediately, and destroyed a great number of the seditions, and raised the sieges of all the fortresses they had besieged. He also exacted the tribute of a hundred talents of his enemies, as a penalty for the mutations they had made in the country. 6. By this time, the Parthians being already driven out of the country and Pacorus slain, Ventidius, by Antony's command, sent a thousand horsemen and two legions as auxiliaries to Herod against Antigonus. Now Antigonus besought Machaerus, who was their general, by letter, to come to his assistance, and made a great many mournful complaints about Herod's violence, and about the injuries he did to the kingdom, and promised to give him money for such his assistance. But he complied not with his invitation to betray his trust, for he did not contemn them that sent him, especially while Herod gave him more money than the other offered. So he pretended friendship to Antigonus, but came as a spy to discover his affairs, although he did not herein comply with Herod, who dissuaded him from so doing. But Antigonus perceived what his intentions were beforehand, and excluded him out of the city, and defended himself against him as against an enemy, from the walls, till Machaerus was ashamed of what he had done, and retired to Emmaus to Herod. And as he was in a rage at his disappointment, he slew all the Jews whom he met with, without sparing those that were for Herod, but using them all as if they were for Antigonus. 7. 
Thereupon Herod was very angry at him, and was going to fight against Machaerus as his enemy. But he restrained his indignation, and marched to Antony to accuse Machaerus of maladministration. But Machaerus was made sensible of his offences, and followed after the king immediately, and earnestly begged and obtained that he would be reconciled to him. However, Herod did not desist from his resolution of going to Antony, but when he heard that he was besieging Samosata, footnote, this Samosata, the metropolis of Comagena, is well known from its coins, as Spanheim here assures us. Dean Aldrich also confirms what Josephus here notes, that Herod was a great means of taking the city by Antony, and that from Plutarch and Dio, end footnote, with a great army, which is a strong city near to Euphrates. He made the greater haste, as observing that this was a proper opportunity for showing at once his courage, and for doing what would greatly oblige Antony. Indeed, when he came, he soon made an end of that siege, and slew a great number of the barbarians, and took from them a large prey, insomuch that Antony, who admired his courage formerly, did now admire it still more. Accordingly, he heaped many more honours upon him, and gave him more assured hopes that he should gain his kingdom, and now King Antiochus was forced to deliver up Samosata. End of Book 1, Chapters 15 and 16Book 1, Chapters 17 and 18 of The Wars of the Jews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Lavin. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus. Translated by William Whiston. Book 1, Chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17 The death of Joseph, Herod's brother, which had been signified to Herod in dreams. How Herod was preserved twice after a wonderful manner. He cuts off the head of Pappus, who was the murderer of his brother, and sends that head to his other brother, Pharoras. And in no long time he besieges Jerusalem and marries Mariamne. 1. In the meantime, Herod's affairs in Judea were in an ill state he had left his brother Joseph with full power, but had charged him to make no attempts against Antigonus till his return, for that Machaerus would not be such an assistant as he could depend on, as it appeared by what he had done already. But as soon as Joseph heard that his brother was at a very great distance, he neglected the charge he had received and marched towards Jericho with five cohorts, which Machaerus sent with him. This movement was intended for seizing on the corn, as it was now in the midst of summer. But when his enemies attacked him in the mountains, and in places which were difficult to pass, he was both killed himself, as he was very bravely fighting in the battle, and the entire Roman cohorts were destroyed, for these cohorts were new-raised men, gathered out of Syria, and here was no mixture of those called veteran soldiers among them who might have supported those that were unskillful in war. 2. This victory was not sufficient for Antigonus, but he proceeded to that degree of rage as to treat the dead body of Joseph barbarously. For when he had got possession of the bodies of those that were slain, he cut off his head, although his brother Pharoras would have given fifty talents as a price of redemption for it, 
And now the affairs of Galilee were put in such disorder after this victory of Antigonus's, that those of Antigonus's party brought the principal men that were on Herod's side to the lake, and there drowned them. There was a great change made also in Idumea, where Macarus was building a wall about one of the fortresses, which was called Gitta. But Herod had not yet been informed of these things, for after the taking of Simasata, and when Antony had set Socius over the affairs of Syria, and had given him orders to assist Herod against Antigonus, he departed into Egypt. But Socius sent two legions before him into Judea to assist Herod, and followed himself soon after with the rest of his army. 3. Now when Herod was at Daphne, by Antioch, he had some dreams which clearly foreboded his brother's death. And as he leaped out of his bed in a disturbed manner, there came messengers that acquainted him with that calamity. So when he had lamented this misfortune for a while, he put off the main part of his mourning, and made haste to march against his enemies. And when he had performed a march that was above his strength, and was gone as far as Libanus, he got him eight hundred men of those that lived near to that mountain as his assistants, and joined with them one Roman legion, with which, before it was day, he made an eruption into Galilee, and met his enemies, and drove them back to the place which they had left. He also made an immediate and continual attack upon the fortress, yet was he forced by a most terrible storm to pitch his camp in the neighboring villages before he could take it. But when, after a few days' time, the second legion that came from Antony joined themselves to him, the enemy was affrighted at his power, and left their fortifications ill the night-time. For, after this, he marched through Jericho, as making what haste he could to be avenged on his brother's murderers, where happened to him a providential sign, out of which, when he had unexpectedly escaped, he had the reputation of being very dear to God. For that evening there feasted with him many of the principal men, and after that feast was over, and all the guests were gone out, the house fell down immediately. And as he judged this to be a common signal of what dangers he should undergo, and how he should escape them in the war that he was going about, he, in the morning, set forward with his army, when about six thousand of his enemies came running down from the mountains, and began to fight with those in his forefront. Yet durst they not be so very bold as to engage the Romans hand to hand, but threw stones and darts at them at a distance, by which means they wounded a considerable number in which action Herod's own side was wounded with a dart. 5. Now as Antigonus had a mind to appear to exceed Herod, not only in the courage but in the number of his men, he sent Pappus, one of his companions, with an army against Samaria, whose fortune it was to oppose Macarus. But Herod overran the enemy's country and demolished five little cities, and destroyed two thousand men that were in them, and burned their houses, and then returned to his camp, but his headquarters were at the village called Cana. 6. Now a great multitude of Jews resorted to him every day, both out of Jericho and the other parts of the country. Some were moved so to do out of the hatred to Antigonus, and some out of regard to the glorious actions Herod had done, but others were led on by an unreasonable desire of change. So he fell upon them immediately. As for Pappus and his party, they were not terrified either at their number or at their zeal, but marched out with great alacrity to fight them. And it came to a close fight. 
Now other parts of their army made resistance for a while, but Herod, running the utmost hazard out of the rage he was in at the murder of his brother, that he might be avenged on those that had been the authors of it, soon beat those that opposed him, and after he had beaten them, he always turned his force against those that stood to it still, and pursued them all, so that a great slaughter was made while some were forced back into that village once they came out. He also pressed hard upon the undermost, and slew a vast number of them. He also fell into the village with the enemy, where every house was filled with armed men, and the upper rooms were crowded above with soldiers for their defense. And when he had beaten those that were on the outside, he pulled the houses to pieces, and plucked out those that were within. Upon many he had the roofs shaken down, whereby they perished by heaps. And as for those that fled out of the ruins, the soldiers received them with their swords in their hands, and the multitude of those slain and lying on heaps was so great that the conquerors could not pass along the roads. Now the enemy could not bear this blow, so that when the multitude of them which was gathered together saw that those in the village were slain, they dispersed themselves and fled away. Upon the confidence of which victory, Herod had marched immediately to Jerusalem, unless he had been hindered by the depth of winter's coming on. This was the impediment that lay in the way of this his entire glorious progress, and was what hindered Antigonus from being now conquered, who was already disposed to forsake the city. 7. Now, when at the evening Herod had already dismissed his friends to refresh themselves after their fatigue, and when he was gone himself, while he was still hot in his armor, like a common soldier, to bathe himself, and had but one servant that attended him. Before he was gotten into the bath, one of the enemies met him in the face with a sword in his hand, and then a second, and then a third. And after that, more of them. These were men who had run away out of the battle into the bath in their armor, and they had lain there for some time in great terror and in privacy. And when they saw the king, they trembled for fear and ran by him in a flight, although he was naked, and endeavored to get off into the public road. Now there was by chance nobody else at hand that might seize upon this man, and for Herod he was contented to have come to no harm himself, so that they all got away in safety. 8. But on the next day Herod had Pappus's head cut off, who was the general for Antigonus, and was slain in the battle, and sent it to his brother Pheroras, by way of punishment for the slain brother, for he was the man that slew Joseph. Now, as winter was going off, Herod marched to Jerusalem and brought his army to the wall of it. This was the third year since he had been made king at Rome. So he pitched his camp before the temple, for on that side it might be besieged, and there it was that Pompey took the city. So he parted the work among the army and demolished the suburbs, and raised three banks and gave orders to have towers built upon those banks, and left the most laborious of his acquaintance at the works. But he went himself to Samaria to take the daughter of Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, to wife, who had been betrothed to him before, as we have already said. And thus he accomplished this by the by, during the siege of the city, for he had his enemies in great contempt already. 9. When he had thus married Mariamne, he came back to Jerusalem with a greater army. Sosius also joined him with a large army, 
both of horsemen and footmen, which he sent before him through the midland parts, while he marched himself along Phoenicia. And when the whole army was gotten together, which were eleven regiments of footmen and six thousand horsemen, besides the Syrian auxiliaries, which were no small part of the army, they pitched their camp near to the north wall. Herod's dependence was upon the decree of the Senate, by which he was made king, and Sosius relied upon Antony, who sent the army that was under him to Herod's assistance. Chapter 18 How Herod and Sosius took Jerusalem by force, and what death Antigonus came to, also concerning Cleopatra's avaricious temper. 1. Now the multitude of the Jews that were in the city were divided into several factions. For the people that crowded about the temple, being the weaker part of them, gave it out that, as the times were, he was the happiest and most religious man who should die first. But as to the more bold and hardy men, they got together in bodies and fell a-robbing others after various manners. And these particularly plundered the places that were about the city, and this because there was no food left either for the horses or the men. Yet some of the warlike men, who were used to fight regularly, were appointed to defend the city during the siege, and these drove those that raised the banks away from the wall, and these were always inventing some engine or another to be a hindrance to the engines of the enemy, nor had they so much success any way as in the mines underground. 2. Now, as for the robberies which were committed, the king contrived that ambushes should be so laid that they might restrain their excursions, and as for the want of provisions, he provided that they should be brought to them from great distances. It was also too hard for the Jews, by the Romans' skill in the art of war, although they were bold to the utmost degree. Now they durst not come to a plain battle with the Romans, which was certain death. But through their minds underground, they would appear in the midst of them on the sudden, and before they could batter down one wall, they built them another in its stead. And to sum up all at once, they did not show any want either of painstaking or of contrivances, as having resolved to hold out to the very last. Indeed, though they had so great an army lying about them, they bore a siege of five months, till some of Herod's chosen men ventured to get upon the wall, and fell into the city, as did Sosius's centurions after them. And now they first of all seized upon what it was about the temple. And upon the pouring in of the army, there was slaughter of vast multitudes everywhere, by reason of the rage the Romans were in at the length of the siege, and by reason that the Jews who were about Herod earnestly endeavored that none of their adversaries might remain. So they were cut to pieces by great multitudes, as they were crowded together in narrow streets and in houses, or were running away to the temple. Nor were there any mercy shown either to the infants, or to the aged, or to the weaker sex, insomuch that although the king sent about and desired them to spare the people, nobody could be persuaded to withhold their right hand from slaughter. But they slew people of all ages like madmen. Then it was that Antigonus, without any regard to his former or to his present fortune, came down from the citadel, and fell at Sosius's feet, who, without pitying him at all, upon the change of his condition, laughed at him beyond measure and called him Antigona. Footnote, that is, a woman, not a man. End footnote.
Yet did he not treat him like a woman, or let him go free, but put him into bonds, and kept him in custody. 3. But Herod's concern at present, now he had gotten his enemies under his power, was to restrain the zeal of his foreign auxiliaries, for the multitude of the strange people were very eager to see the temple, and what was sacred in the holy house itself. But the king endeavored to restrain them, partly by his exhortations, partly by his threatenings, nay, partly by force, as thinking the victory worse than a defeat to him, if anything that ought not to be seen were seen by them. He also forbade at the same time the spoiling of the city, asking Sotius in the most earnest manner whether the Romans, by thus emptying the city of money and men, had a mind to leave him king of a desert, and told him that he judged the dominion of the habitable earth too small a compensation for the slaughter of so many citizens. And when Sotius said that it was but just to allow the soldiers this plunder as a reward for what they had suffered during the siege, Herod made answer that he would give every one of the soldiers a reward out of his own money. So he purchased the deliverance of his country, and performed his promises to them, and made presents after a magnificent manner to each soldier, and proportionately to their commanders, and with the most royal bounty to Sotius himself, whereby nobody went away but in a wealthy condition. Hereupon Sotius dedicated a crown of gold to God, and then went away from Jerusalem, leading Antigonus away in bonds to Antony. Then did the axe bring him to his end. Footnote. This death of Antigonus is confirmed by Plutarch and Straho, the latter of whom is cited for it by Josephus himself, as Dean Aldrich here observes, and footnote, who still had a fond desire of life and some frigid hopes of it to the last, but by his cowardly behavior, well deserved to die by it. Four. Hereupon King Herod distinguished the multitude that was in the city, and for those that were on his side, he made them still more his friends by the honors he conferred on them. But for those of Antigonus's party, he slew them, and as his money ran low, he turned all the ornaments he had into money, and sent it to Antony, and to those about him. Yet could he not hereby purchase an exemption from all sufferings. For Antony was now bewitched by his love to Cleopatra, and was entirely conquered by her charms. Now Cleopatra had put to death all her kindred, till no one near her in blood remained alive, and after that she fell a-slaying those no way related to her. So she calumniated the principal men among the Syrians to Antony, and persuaded him to have them slain that so she might easily gain to be mistress of what they had. Nay, she extended her avaricious humor to the Jews and Arabians, and secretly labored to have Herod and Malachus, the kings of both those nations, slain by his order. 5. Now is to these her injunctions to Antony. He complied in part, for though he esteemed it too abominable a thing to kill such good and great kings, yet was he thereby alienated from the friendship he had for them. He also took away a great deal of their country, nay, even the plantation of palm trees at Jericho, where also grows the balsam tree, 
bestowed them upon her, as also all the cities on this side of the river Eleutherus, Tyre and Sidon accepted. Footnote. This ancient liberty of Tyre and Sidon under the Romans, taken notice of by Josephus, is confirmed by the testimony of Sarabe, as Dean Aldrich remarks, although, as he justly adds, this liberty lasted but a little while longer when August took it away from them. End footnote. And when she was become mistress of these, and had conducted Antony in his expedition against the Parthians as far as Euphrates, she came by Apamea and Damascus into Judea, and there did Herod pacify her indignation at him by large presents. He also hired of her those places that had been torn away from his kingdom at the yearly rent of two hundred talents. He conducted her also as far as Pelusium, and paid her all the respects possible. Now it was not long after this that Antony was come back from Parthia, and led with him Artabases, Tigranes' son, captive, as a present for Cleopatra. For this Parthian was presently given her with his money, and all the prey that was taken with him. End of Book 1, Chapters 17 and 18 Recording by Kevin Lavin Book 1, Chapters 19 and 20 of The Wars of the Jews This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus, translated by William Whiston, Book 1, Chapters 19 and 20. Chapter 19. How Antony, at the persuasion of Cleopatra, sent Herod to fight against the Arabians, and now after several battles, he at length got the victory, as also concerning a great earthquake. 1. Now when the war about Actium was begun, Herod prepared to come to the assistance of Antony, as being already freed from his troubles in Judea, and having gained Hyrcania, which was a place that was held by Antigonus's sister. However, he was cunningly hindered from partaking of the hazards that Antony went through by Cleopatra. For since, as we have already noted, she had laid a plot against the kings of Judea and Arabia, she prevailed with Antony to commit the war against the Arabians to Herod, that so, if he got the better, she might become mistress of Arabia, or, if he were worsted, of Judea, and that she might destroy one of those kings by the other. 2. However, this contrivance tended to the advantage of Herod, for at the very first he took hostages from the enemy and got together a great body of horse, and ordered them to march against them about Diespos. And he conquered that army, although it fought resolutely against him. After which defeat, the Arabians were in great motion, and assembled themselves together at Canatha, a city of Celesyria, in vast multitudes, and waited for the Jews. And when Herod was come thither, he tried to manage this war with particular prudence, and gave orders that they should build a wall about their camp yet did not the multitude comply with these orders, but were so emboldened by their foregoing victory that they presently attacked the Arabians and beat them at the first onset, and then pursued them. Yet were their snares laid for Herod in that pursuit, while Athenio, who was one of Cleopatra's generals, and always an antagonist to Herod, 
sent out of Canatha the men of that country against him. For, upon this fresh onset, the Arabians took courage and returned back, and both joined their numerous forces about stony places that were hard to be gone over, and there put Herod's men to the rout, and made a great slaughter of them. But those that escaped out of the battle fled to Ormisa, where the Arabians surrounded their camp and took it, with all the men in it. 3. In a little time after this calamity, Herod came to bring them succors, but he came too late. Now the occasion of that blow was this, that the officers would not obey orders, for had not the fight begun so suddenly, Athenio had not found a proper season for the snares he laid for Herod. However, he was even with the Arabians afterward, and overran their country, and did them more harm than their single victory could compensate. But as he was avenging himself on his enemies, there fell upon him another providential calamity, for in the seventh year of his reign, footnote, this seventh year of the reign of Herod, from the conquest or death of Antigonus, with the great earthquake in the beginning of the same spring, which are here fully implied to be not much before the fight at Actium between Octavius and Antony, and which is known from the Roman historians to have been in the beginning of September, in the 31st year before the Christian era, determines the chronology of Josephus as to the reign of Herod, viz. that he began in the year 37, beyond rational contradiction. Nor is it quite unworthy of our notice that this seventh year of the reign of Herod, or the 31st before the Christian era, contains the latter part of a sabbatic year, on which the sabbatic year, therefore, it is plain this great earthquake happened in Judea. End footnote. When the war about Actium was at its height, at the beginning of the spring, the earth was shaken and destroyed an immense number of cattle with 30,000 men. But the army received no harm because it lay in the open air. In the meantime, the fame of this earthquake elevated the Arabians to greater courage, and this by augmenting it to a fabulous height, as is constantly the case in melancholy accidents, and pretending that all Judea was overthrown. Upon this supposal, therefore, that they should easily get a land that was destitute of inhabitants into their power, they first sacrificed those ambassadors who were come to them from the Jews, and then marched into Judea immediately. Now the Jewish nation were affrighted at this invasion, and quite dispirited at the greatness of their calamities one after another, whom yet Herod got together, and endeavored to encourage to defend themselves by the following speech which he made to them. 4. The present dread you are under seems to me to have seized upon you very unreasonably. It is true you might justly be dismayed at that providential chastisement which hath befallen you, but to suffer yourselves to be equally terrified at the invasion of men is unmanly. As for myself, I am so far from being affrighted at our enemies after this earthquake that I imagine that God hath thereby laid a bait for the Arabians, that we may be avenged on them, for their present invasion proceeds more from our accidental misfortunes than that they have any great dependence on their weapons or their own fitness for action. Now that hope which depends not on men's own power but on others' ill success is a very ticklish thing. For there is no certainty among men, either in their bad or good fortunes, but we may easily observe that fortune is mutable and goes from one side to another, and this you may readily learn from examples among yourselves. For when you were once victors in the former fight, your enemies overcame you at last. 
and very likely it will now happen so that those who think themselves sure of beating you will themselves be beaten. For when men are very confident, they are not upon their guard, while fear teaches men to act with caution, insomuch that I venture to prove from your very timorousness that you ought to take courage. For when you were more bold than you ought to have been, and then I would have had you and marched on, Athenio's treachery took place. But your present slowness and seeming dejection of mind is to me a pledge and assurance of victory. And indeed, it is proper beforehand to be thus provident. But when we come to action, we ought to erect our minds and to make our enemies, be they ever so wicked, believe that neither any human, no, nor any providential misfortune can ever depress the courage of Jews while they are alive. Nor will any of them ever overlook an Arabian or suffer such a one to become lord of his good things, whom he has in a manner taken captive, and that many times also. And do not you disturb yourselves at the quaking of inanimate creatures, nor do you imagine that this earthquake is a sign of another calamity. For such affections of the elements are according to the course of nature, nor does it import anything further to men than what mischief it does immediately of itself. Perhaps there may come some short sign beforehand in the case of pestilences and famines and earthquakes, but these calamities themselves have their force limited by themselves without foreboding any other calamity. And indeed, what greater mischief can the war, though it should be a violent one, do to us than the earthquake hath done? Nay, there is a signal of our enemy's destruction visible, and that a very great one also, and this not a natural one, nor derived from the hand of foreigners neither. But it is this, that they have barbarously murdered our ambassadors, contrary to the common law of mankind, and they have destroyed so many, as if they esteemed them sacrifices for God in relation to this war. But they will not avoid his great eye, nor his invincible right hand, and we shall be revenged of them presently, in case we shall retain any of the courage of our forefathers, and rise up boldly to punish these covenant-breakers. Let every one therefore go on and fight, not so much for his wife or his children, or for the danger his country is in, as for these ambassadors of ours. Those dead ambassadors will conduct this war of ours better than we ourselves who are alive. And if you will be ruled by me, I will myself go before you into danger. For you know this well enough, that your courage is irresistible, unless you hurt yourselves by acting rashly. Footnote. This speech of Herod is set down twice by Josephus, to the very same purpose, but by no means in the same words. Whence it appears that the sense was Herod's, but the composition Josephus's. End footnote. 5. When Herod had encouraged them with this speech, and he saw with what alacrity they went, he offered sacrifice to God, and after that sacrifice, he passed over the river Jordan with his army and pitched his camp about Philadelphia near the enemy and about a fortification that lay between them. He then shot at them at a distance and was desirous to come to an engagement presently, for some of them had been sent beforehand to seize upon that fortification. But the king sent some who immediately beat them out of the fortification, while he himself went in the forefront of the army, which he put in battle array every day, and invited the Arabians to fight. But as none of them came out of their camp, for they were in a terrible fright, and their general, Althamus, was not able to say a word for fear, 
so Herod came upon them and pulled their fortification to pieces, by which means they were compelled to come out to fight, which they did in disorder, and so that the horsemen and footmen were mixed together. They were indeed superior to the Jews in number, but inferior in their alacrity, although they were obliged to expose themselves to danger by their very despair of victory. 6. Now while they made opposition, they had not a great number slain. But as soon as they turned their backs, a great many were trodden to pieces by the Jews, and a great many by themselves, and so perished, till five thousand were fallen dead in their flight, while the rest of the multitude prevented their immediate death by crowding into the fortification. Herod encompassed these around and besieged them, and while they were ready to be taken by their enemies in arms, they had another additional distress upon them, which was thirst and want of water, for the king was above hearkening to their ambassadors, and when they offered five hundred talents as the price of their redemption, he pressed still harder upon them, and as they were burnt up by their thirst, they came out and voluntarily delivered themselves up by multitudes to the Jews, till in five days' time four thousand of them were put into bonds, and on the sixth day the multitude that were left despaired of saving themselves, and came out to fight. With these Herod fought, and slew again about seven thousand, insomuch that he punished Arabia so severely, and so far extinguished the spirits of the men that he was chosen by the nation for their ruler. Chapter 20 Herod is confirmed in his kingdom by Caesar, and cultivates a friendship with the emperor by magnificent presence, while Caesar returns his kindness by bestowing on him that part of his kingdom which had been taken away from it by Cleopatra, with the addition of Zenodorus' country also. 1. But now Herod was under immediate concern about a most important affair, on account of his friendship with Antony, who was already overcome at Actium by Caesar. Yet he was more afraid than hurt, for Caesar did not think he had quite undone Antony, while Herod continued his assistance to him. However, the king resolved to expose himself to dangers. Accordingly, he sailed to Rhodes, where Caesar then abode, and came to him without his diadem, and in the habit and appearance of a private person, but in his behavior as a king. So he concealed nothing of the truth, but spike thus before his face. O Caesar, as I was made king of the Jews by Antony, so do I profess that I have used my royal authority in the best manner, and entirely for his advantage. Nor will I conceal this further, that thou hast certainly found me in arms, and an inseparable companion of his, had not the Arabians hindered me. However, I sent him as many auxiliaries as I was able, and many ten thousand cori of corn. Nay, indeed, I did not desert my benefactor after the bow that was given him at Actium, but I gave him the best advice I was able when I was no longer able to assist him in the war, and I told him that there was but one way of recovering his affairs, and that was to kill Cleopatra, and I promised him that, if she were once dead, I would afford him money and walls for his security, with an army and myself to assist him in his war against thee but his affections for Cleopatra stopped his ears, as did God himself also, who hath bestowed the government on thee. I own myself also to be overcome together with him, and with his last fortune I have laid aside my diadem, and have come hither to thee, having my hopes of safety in thy virtue. And I desire that thou wilt first consider how faithful a friend, 
and not whose friend I have been. 2. Caesar replied to him not, Nay, thou shalt not only be in safety, but thou shalt be a king, and that more firmly than thou wast before. For thou art worthy to reign over a great many subjects by reason of the fastness of thy friendship. And do thou endeavor to be equally constant in thy friendship to me upon my good success, which is what I depend upon from the generosity of thy disposition. However, Antony hath done well in preferring Cleopatra to thee, for by this means we have gained thee by her madness, and thus thou hast begun to be my friend before I began to be thine. On which account Quintus Didius hath written to me that thou sentest him assistance against the gladiators. I do therefore assure thee that I will confirm the kingdom to thee by decree. I shall also endeavor to do thee some further kindness hereafter, that thou mayest find no loss in the want of Antony. 3. When Caesar had spoken such obliging things to the king, and had put the diadem again about his head, he proclaimed what he had bestowed on him by a decree, in which he enlarged in the commendation of the man after a magnificent manner. Whereupon Herod obliged him to be kind to him by the presents he gave him, and he desired him to forgive Alexander, one of Antony's friends, who was become a supplicant to him. But Caesar's anger against him prevailed, and he complained of the many and very great offenses the man whom he petitioned for had been guilty of, and by that means he rejected his petition. After this, Caesar went for Egypt through Syria, when Herod received him with royal and rich entertainments. And then did he first of all ride along with Caesar, as he was reviewing his army about Ptolemy, and feasted him with all his friends and then distributed among the rest of the army what was necessary to feast them withal. He also made a plentiful provision of water for them when they were to march as far as Pelusium through a dry country, which he did also in like manner at their return thence, nor were there any necessaries wanting to that army. It was therefore the opinion, both of Caesar and of his soldiers, that Herod's kingdom was too small for those generous presents he made them. For which reason, when Caesar was come into Egypt, and Cleopatra and Antony were dead, he did not only bestow other marks of honor upon him, but made an addition to his kingdom, by giving him not only the country which had been taken from him by Cleopatra, but besides that, Gadara, and Hippos, and Samaria, and moreover of the maritime cities, Gaza, and Anthedon, and Joppa, and Strato's Tower. Footnote. Since Josephus, both here and in his antiquities, reckons Gaza, which had been a free city, among the cities given Herod by Augustus, and yet implies that Herod had made Costoborus a governor of it before, Harding has some pretense for saying that Josephus here contradicted himself. But perhaps Herod thought he had sufficient authority to put a governor into Gaza after he was made tetrarch or king in times of war, before the city was entirely delivered into his hands by Augustus. End footnote. He also made him a present of four hundred Gauls, Galatians, as a guard for his body, which they had been to Cleopatra before. Nor did anything so strongly induce Caesar to make these presents as the generosity of him that received them. 4. Moreover, after the first games at Actium, he added to his kingdom both the region called Tranconitis, and what lay in its neighborhood, Betanea, and the country of Aronitus, and that on the following occasion. Zenodorus, who had hired the house of Lysanias, 
had all along sent robbers out of Trachonitis among the Damascenes, who thereupon had recourse to Varro, the president of Syria, and desired of him that he would represent the calamity they were in to Caesar. When Caesar was acquainted with it, he sent back orders that this nest of robbers should be destroyed. Varro therefore made an expedition against them, and cleared the land of those men, and took it away from Zenodorus. Caesar did also afterward bestow it on Herod, that it might not again become a receptacle for those robbers that had come against Damascus. He also made him a procurator of all Syria, and this on the tenth year afterward, when he came again into that province. And this was so established that the other procurators could not do anything in the administration without his advice. But when Zenodorus was dead, Caesar bestowed on him all that land which lay between Trachonitis and Galilee. Yet, what was still of more consequence to Herod, he was beloved by Caesar next after Agrippa, and by Agrippa next after Caesar, whence he arrived at a very great degree of felicity. Yet did the greatness of his soul exceed it, and the main part of his magnanimity was extended to the promotion of piety. End of Book 1, Chapters 19 and 20one chapters 21 and 22 of the wars of the jews this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the wars of the jews by josephus translated by william whiston book one chapters 21 and 22 chapter 21 of the temple and cities that were built by Herod and erected from the very foundation, as also of those other edifices that were erected by him, and what magnificence he showed to foreigners, and how fortune... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.